1: As you recall, Will Robinson, along with the professor, Major West and the robot, had left our space camp in search of vitally needed water. Professor Smith and the women remained at the Jupiter II, unaware that off in the darkness, a desperate fugitive from outer space justice had suddenly been turned loose on their planet. Oh, what a pleasant evening it is. I think I shall sleep under the stars tonight.
2: Well, if you do, Dr. Smith, I'd advise you to move inside the force field.
1: Oh, come, come, madam. What could possibly happen on a quiet, peaceful evening like this?
3: You stupid, bumbling brutes!
4: You've lost him! I'll have you punished for this, do you hear? Now pick up his trail. I want him found.
0: Welcome back, folks, for episode 26 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 26th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled All That Glitters. As an officer of the Galaxy Law Enforcement Agency, I want to caution you that anything you say can be used against you in a galactic court of law, but you do not have the right to remain silent, sir.
5: Dismissed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, this is going to be fun, I think. But once again, we have quite a few production notes. So before we begin with the story, let me get to that. 43-year-old Barney Slater is back with his eighth script for Lost in Space we last enjoyed his work for The Space Trader. This story has allegorical echoes from his earlier script for Wish Upon a Star and also borrows shamelessly from the classic story of King Midas. Slater's teleplay went through extensive revisions and polishing from editor Tony Wilson based in large part on Irwin Allen's notes. Many of the plot holes and logic problems Alan pointed out were never fully resolved, though. But one little change that was made involved the name Slater had originally given for the alien fugitive, which was Wohan. (laughs) Alan didn't care for it, complaining that it sounded too much like woman. So Wilson changed it to Ohan, which was a clever anagram derived from the name Noah. This wouldn't be the last time that Wilson would give characters the anagram name treatment, often as an inside joke. Uh Uh-huh. This is the second of five episodes of Lost in Space that 43-year-old Harry Harris would direct. Last time, he ran way over schedule filming His Majesty Smith. But this shoot, he came in on time, filming from the 11th through the 18th of March, 1966, Six Days. That, of course, made Irwin happy, which explains why the producer would keep giving Harris work on all of his shows in the years to come.
5: Remember, eight pages a day keeps Irwin away. <laughs>
0: Well, that contrasts with the story I teased last time about cinematographer Gene Polito, who had filmed 24 of 25 episodes of Lost in Space. The only episode he'd missed to date was Magic Mirror during the earlier emergency two-for-one shoot, while he filmed Were the Robots. Until now, that is. For this episode, Polito made the mistake of coming down with the flu.
5: Uh, the big idea! I know. I can't believe that guy. <laughs>
0: So, Wenton Hock, director of photography from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, filled in for the sick cameraman. Hawk's approach to filming all that glitters skipped the complex lighting configurations that Polito used to achieve his single-source shadows and atmospheric tonality. If somewhat less artistic, Hock's setups were much less time-consuming, and best of all, cheaper, since he required two fewer electricians than Polito typically used. All of this spelled doom for the missing DP. Irwin let him go after calling in sick, but he wasn't out of work for long. He wound up with numerous TV and feature film credits, including the sci-fi films Colossus, the Forbin Project in nineteen seventy, 1970, the nineteen seventy-three classic Westworld, and its nineteen seventy six sequel Future World.
5: So here's the deal. I'm not saying that you're not gonna work again, I'm just saying you're not gonna work for me again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! What a
0: guy! I know, I know. Don't call it sick. <laughs> <laughs> it was like he was just waiting for that excuse, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think what did him in was the fact that the other guy came in and was able to do it cheaper. And he was, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, so. That's what it is. Yeah.
5: I mean, it's sort of like nothing personal, just business, you know. Exactly.
0: Well, he was missed by the cast and crew and the hardcore fans of the series, but given that intense budget and time pressure that Erwin Allen was under making Lost in Space, I guess it's kind of understandable. Like you say, it's nothing personal,
5: just business. Yeah, well, before I was only kidding when I said Irwin would holler, you know, I don't want odd, I only want product, get that sausage grinding, (laughs) quick, chop, chop. But, you know, apparently the joke was on me. The bottom line is Uncle Irwin is all about the bottom line. Indeed. Indeed.
0: All That Glitters also involved a reprise of that two-for-one shooting concept that had been used once before. In this case, Glitters, which featured just the female cast members plus Dr. Smith, started production on the same day as episode 27, The Lost Civilization. That one featured the male cast members, minus Smith, and the robot. Based on their earlier experience, this time the decision was made to do very little stage sharing between the two productions. Glitters primarily used the regular Lost in Space stages and production crew, while Lost Civilization used the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea stages and crew. Those Voyage assets were available because that series had already wrapped their Season 2 production schedule. Even with those changes, it was still a lot to manage, and success would very much depend on strictly adhering to the timetable.
5: Yeah, it's a great, you know, ability to know that they were doing that, because that makes watching these episodes so much more fun. The same way with uh, War of the Robots and that dual production as well. Yeah, it is. Well, this episode aired originally on April 6th,
0: 1966, and it got a summer repeat July 27th, 1966. 45-year-old Werner Klimperer was cast as the uptight and officious intergalactic policeman, Officer Bollocks. Erwin Allen respected Klemperer, having cast him twice before on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Born in Germany, the son of famed Jewish conductor Otto Klemperer and renowned soprano Johanna Geisler, his family immigrated to the United States in 1935. With his urbane looks and subtle accent, he often played villainous roles. The actor gained notoriety when he was cast as a Nazi judge on trial in the 1961 film Judgment at Nuremberg. Despite being a talented dramatic actor, his breakout role was playing another uptight, although bumbling officer, Colonel Wilhelm Klink, in the CBS hit comedy series, Hogan's Heroes. Hogan! <laughs> <laughs> There's never been a successful escape from Starlight 13!
5: Shut up, Klink! <laughs> <laughs>
0: For that role he'd earn five Emmy nominations and take home two of the awards. In addition to his acting skill, Klepper inherited his parents' musical ability, carving out an impressive side career as an orchestra conductor and concert violinist.
5: Oh, you know, I'm really glad you explained that because I always get a little nervous when I see a former Nazi officer slipping into a New York City subway carrying a violin case. <laughs> uh,
0: that's just me. Yeah. Just me. Playing the alien fugitive Ohan was 41-year-old Larry Ward. He was best known at the time for playing the lead role of U.S. Marshal Frank Reagan in the ABC Western series The Dakotas. He was brought back later for one episode of The Time Tunnel and eventually earned over 50 screen credits as an actor and writer over a 30-year career. 43-year-old Theodore Lehman provided the voice of the glowing object Smith uses to find his treasure. He'd previously appeared as one of the mouthless aliens in Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, and I think his voice talents were well-suited for this part. I like his tone.
5: Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Did he also voice the alien that he was playing? You know I mean? Because obviously they had to dub it in. It was covered up, you know, with latex and stuff like that. He did. He did. And I
0: kind of thought his voice sounded familiar, and that's why.
5: Uh, Now, was he the, uh, let him go, was he him, or was he, shall I destroy? Oh, man. I'm not sure. I I think he was let him go. I think he was let him go. He might have been
0: let him go, but... uh,
5: (laughs) He was the leader, you know.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Let him go. (laughs) Let him go. Well, although uncredited again, according to Eisner and Megan's book Lost in Space Forever, playing Officer Bollocks' hairy monster bloodhounds are Dawson Palmer and Mike Donovan. Those bear suits never grow old, do they?
5: (laughs) No, but you know those bear suits remind me of a popular toy from the 1970s and 1980s. They were called dolls. Do you remember those? Oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, they were only 8 or 12 inches tall, and they came in all sorts of popular DC comic book characters like Superman, Batman, Aquaman. Oh, you yeah, yeah,
0: the Mego action figures. I know what you're talking about, yeah.
5: Yeah, don't I mispronouncing it? You know, it's Mego? Mego, I think or that's right. Yeah. Okay, but the funny thing was... They were all the exact same dolls except they they had different heads. <laughs> you know, just like Erwood Sparemaster's la- outfits, you know. This episode it it's basically a ghillie suit head. No eyes or mouth or anything, just hair everywhere. Maybe we should have called it the hippie head, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I should also mention that Mega also did a lot of popular TV characters like Star Trek, Planet of the Apes, and Zorro, but alas, no Lost in Space. I know. I would have brought one of those so fast, you know, if they made the—I mean, even if it meant being called a sissy doll collector, I would have loved to have, you know, Dr. Smith or the robot. Of course, they couldn't have done the robot. They would have had to make a whole body for that. But. Oh, But the rest, that would have been pretty interesting, yeah. No, I I had the
0: Planet of the Apes, but I would have definitely... And I think I had a Batman one, too, which was... Sissy. I know, I know,
5: but... uh, The bigger question is, do you still have them? Because, I mean, they're pretty expensive now. No, they (laughs) are expensive. So you kept the original Lane August five-foot hoster of robot made with magic markers. <laughs> but you lost, you lo- that has no value whatsoever, but you lost the magos that are probably you know, worth hundreds. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, with that,
0: let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts out with a narrator catching us up from last episode's cliffhanger. It's twilight outside the Jupiter Two. John, Don, Will, and the Robot depart the Robinson campsite in the Chariot on an expedition to find a fresh supply of water, leaving Professor Smith and the ladies alone. Did you catch that uh, Dick Tufeld said Professor Smith versus Dr. Smith in his narration?
5: No, I missed that.
0: Yeah, that was kind of a little catch there. But more importantly, why in the world are they leaving Smith home alone with the women again? It's like they never
5: learn. (laughs) Oh, no. well, maybe they thought it would be too explosive to have Smith locked in the chariot with Major Wes all that time <laughs> Especially with this real work to be done you know. Exactly
0: well, well, once the chariot has disappeared over the horizon Marine switches on the
5: force field And a smiling Dr. Smith waxes Ah, oh, what a pleasant evening it is I think I shall sleep under the stars tonight If he does, Marine advises him to stay inside the force field Oh, come now, madam. What could possibly happen on a quiet and peaceful evening like this?
0: Abruptly, though, we cut to a disturbing scene. A strange, exhausted-looking man dressed in ragged clothing is hiding behind a large boulder in the foreground. Then suddenly, a pair of huge, hairy beasts, screaming in the darkness, lope into the distant background of frame and they're closely followed by a tall man in uniform and silver combat helmet, carrying a bullwhip in one hand and a pistol in the other. He barks angrily in a familiar accent at the stupid, bumbling brutes that they've lost him. Apparently the stranger in rags is who they're hunting because he crouches down to avoid being seen. With a crack of his whip, The uniformed man orders the beast to pick up the trail. Oh boy, (laughs) better call the SBCA, Kurt. Yeah, he's ruthless. He is. With a few angry screams, the beasts comply and the three head out of the area. With the danger over for the moment, the disheveled stranger sinks down from the rocks and breathes a pitiful sigh of relief. Next morning, Dr. Smith and Penny are picking berries. Well, at least Penny is. Smith's too busy eating them to do much picking.
5: The girl chides him for stuffing his face. A few samples won't be missed. It was a whole pail when you started. I've only eaten 103 berries. I counted. Popping one more into his mouth, he adds, 104. I dislike odd numbers.
0: (laughs) Penny warns Smith that he'll have to explain to Mom why they didn't get enough berries for more than one pie which causes the doctor to stop eating and start picking. But he doesn't get more than a couple of berries in his empty pail before he's startled by the sight of that bedraggled stranger peering out from the bushes. (gasps) Frozen in fear, Smith whispers for Penny to remain calm, and when he gives the signal to run, but when the worn out man makes a move forward, Dr. Smith screams in panic, run! <laughs> Scurries over to Penny, and in a flash maneuvers himself behind the girl for protection. Sorry, Penny. <laughs> Will's out of town, so you're going to have to substitute as Dr. Smith's human shield. She'll get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> worn out and filthy, the sweating stranger takes a few more unsteady steps towards the pair, but instead of attacking, he begs in perfect American English, Help me! then slowly collapses unconscious on the sandy ground. Smith's ready to retreat, but Penny feels empathy for the man and insists that they help the alien. Despite his protest that they leave the knocked out man to his fate, Penny puts her foot down and shames Smith into staying for the moment. Slowly, the girl approaches the comatose visitor, kneeling next to him. She tries to bring him around with a few gentle shakes and some kind words. It seems to be working, but as soon as he regains his senses, the stranger repays Penny's kindness by grabbing her arm in a vice grip. Which causes the girl to panic and puts Smith back into full meltdown mode. Leave no good deed unpunished. Mm. Penny tries to free herself from the alien's hold and calls out for help from the scared stiff Smith. Instead of giving her a hand, the ever-reliable doctor me. beats feet, screaming,
3: I run for help, Penny! <laughs> Dr. Smith, don't leave me.
0: Still struggling to get free, Penny calms down and introduces herself. The visitor asks the girl if she's seen another alien in uniform with two large animals. She assures him that she hasn't, and promising not to escape, she begs him to release her from his grasp. Too tired to hold her any longer, the man does release Penny and flops his head back down into the sand. Once more, falling into unconsciousness. Back at the Jupiter 2, the familiar sound of Dr. Smith's hysterical screams... Proceeds his panicked run back into the camp. The commotion alerts Mom and Judy, who race outside the ship, and get the report from an out-of-breath Smith that
5: He's got Penny! I tried to warn her, but she wouldn't listen!
0: Struggling to make sense of Smith's ramblings, they finally understand that, yet again, despite his claims that he'd gladly laid down his life for Penny, Smith has managed to save himself while leaving one of the children in the clutches of a potentially hostile
5: alien. He did say that he would gladly sacrifice himself but like my mom always said it's the thought that counts.
0: Yes. <laughs> Smith promises to lead the women back to the scene of the crime but what's a weapon first? But there's no time to lose and fortunately the ladies are already armed and packing heat. That was convenient.
5: <laughs> oh, no, we we just happen to have them on our hips here. What do you know? <laughs>
0: what do you know? <laughs> They promise to protect Smith and the threesome ramble out of the camp to rescue Penny, hopefully before anything too dreadful happens to the poor girl. Before we go to credits, the castaways arrive back at the bushy, rocky area where Smith abandoned Penny, but there's no sign of the damsel in distress or the stranger. They call out for the girl but get no reply. Penny!
1: Penny! I left them both right here.
0: Then, hearing a noise coming from the brush ahead, Maureen shouts... Penny, is that you? But instead of the missing girl, they're greeted by a terrifying sight that stops all three space pioneers dead in their tracks. With saucer-sized eyes and wide-open mouths, Smith and the ladies are confronted by the pair of ferociously howling, overgrown, and faceless hairy beasts approaching from just a few yards away.
5: Oh! Two of them! It's an invasion! Not
0: waiting to find out if those specimens are on the endangered species list. Quick-draw Marine takes a couple of shots with her laser pistol at the beasts. Despite their screams of pain and momentary pause, her blasts seem only to have left the terrible twosome angry. Uh Uh-oh,
5: now what? Wow! hey, Blooper alert, did you see that when she shoots the monster on the left, it's the one on the right that reacts? No, Yeah. Oh, you you can tell that they planned it. You know that the one on the right was going to get the blast first, and then the second one would get hit on the left. Yeah. But Lefty stepped behind a branch for a second, and that forced them to shoot the other guy first. You know, because <laughs> the laser blast is a straight line. Yeah. And it can't it can't get around the branch. So until <laughs> until Lefty steps back into the line of fire, the other guy gets the blast. So, but it's not a biggie, you know. But it's kind of fun. It's a itsy bitsy blooper, especially since you know, the wrong one reacts. But yeah. then again, they look like identical monsters. So maybe they were twins and you know what they say, identical twins can kind of feel the pain of the other one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a psychic bond. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like it. That's a great explanation. Uh, that'll have to become part of the canon now, I suppose. Sure. Oh. Well, discretion being the better part of valor, mom, Judy and Smith all turn heel and run for their lives back to the safety of the Jupiter Two. But what about Penny and that weary stranger? What's happened to them? For that matter, where's the hairy beast's sadistic master? But what I really want to know is how long will it take Maureen to get on the radio and call for help from John and the real men this time?
5: Oh, we wouldn't want to disrupt him. He's busy. You know how that is. Yeah, why tell him that the chimpanzee is now a giant? You know, he wouldn't want to know that. He's got other things on his mind. (laughs) Well, this
0: episode is off to an exciting start, but I guess we'll have to wait until after the opening titles to get the answers to these and many other questions. So hold on to your seats, kids. When we return from the opening credits, Dr. Smith and the girls are still running for their lives, closely pursued by those two hairy beasts. As usual, Smith has left the girls in the dust. I guess he figures that if the monsters catch Judy and Maureen, while they're eating them, he'll still have time to close the hatch before they can catch him.
5: (laughs) Yeah, but he would only do that so he would be around to help Penny, I'm sure. It has nothing (laughs) to do with saving his own skin. Nothing at all. (laughs) The terrified
0: threesome rush into the campsite and into the ship, just a few paces ahead of those lumbering monsters. Marine closes the airlock hatch, then switches on the force field. And what do you know, Kurt? For once, as Judy declares, it stopped them. And she's right. The monsters run into the invisible barrier and are halted dead in their tracks at the edge of the camp with a nice little animated flash of energy. Yeah, for once it
5: works, but later on we discover it works a little too well, or at least differently than it did before, but uh, don't touch that dial and you'll see what I mean. Yes. You
0: know, I did notice a couple things about those monsters I like. As we mentioned, we get another use of the bear suits, which is expected by now, but I did like those faceless bison heads. What'd you call them, hippie
5: heads? Or If it was Omega, they would have called it the hippie head. It had hair growing out of every possible, you know, pore. Yeah. <laughs> But I really like
0: those great sounds they made. And once again, I think the sound effects guy earned his keep because those howls really worked for me. Yep. There's an interesting tie-in for those sound effects I'll talk about when we give our final take on this episode. But you'll have to wait until the end to hear it. Did you like the Shaggy Beast? Did you like this version of the bear suit?
5: Uh, Well, I felt a little cheated with no faces, but they were scary enough. I'd rather have no face at all than that silver gold base painted routine that they often
0: did, you know, so hey. Yeah, that's true. But again, I think it's another case where the sound really makes the the monster scarier than it seems. Yes. The sound and the music. (laughs) Absolutely. Watching through the viewport as the beasts bump repeatedly against the energy shield, a panting smith complains...
5: Oh dear, flesh and blood can only stand so much, I'm in a state of complete shock.
0: Judy angrily rebukes the doctor that at least he's safe. Poor Penny is still out there.
5: Poor child, who knows what dire fate has befallen her.
0: Fortunately, just at that moment, we hear the poor child's voice from off screen announce that she's fine. Smith and the ladies rush over to the ladder and sit down to get a full report from the prodigal daughter. With a face and voice filled with compassion, Penny explains the disheveled alien was at the end of his strength, and she brought him back to the ship so he could recover in Dr. Smith's quarters. What? Incensed that the absolutely filthy alien is squatting in his bed, the girl reassures Smith that it's okay. She let him shower up and gave him some of the doctor's clean clothes to wear, adding, I hope you don't mind.
5: No, certainly not. Why should I mind sharing my meagre belongings with every hobo who wanders by? I have plenty of everything.
0: <laughs> Smiling slightly at Smith's displeasure, Maureen changes the subject, asking Penny to start from the beginning. She tells them the alien's name is Ohan and that he's a fugitive from justice.
5: Oh, now I've heard everything. This cannot be true. A criminal sleeping in my bed, wearing my clothes. He'll probably murder us all. And he probably
0: ate all their porridge,
5: too. <laughs> <laughs> Penny sets
0: Smith straight. Ohan's not a violent fugitive. He's an intergalactic burglar, being hunted by the law. But she's sure he's not a bad person. (laughs) He only grabbed her because he feared she'd leave him to the mercy of those hairy beasts. Still visibly shaken and unnerved, Smith is having none of this.
5: This is a fine how-do-you-do, madam. A fugitive from Justice Inside and two monsters waiting on the outside.
0: Glancing back out the viewport, Judy announces, though, that the beasts are gone for the moment. Mom says she'll leave the force field on, just in case they return. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. (laughs) But that's no consolation for Dr. Smith. What about the alien? Marine says they'll decide what to do about him later, after he awakens. Leaping to his feet, Smith announces with a tone of authority and a solemn palm over his heart.
5: As far as I'm concerned, madam, the decision is already made. Since the other male members of this family are absent... I am in command. The safety of all of you is my responsibility. Ohan or Ohonk or whatever his name is, goes. (laughs) Uh, I'm with Smitty on this one. I mean, the guy's a criminal. We know that much. And generally speaking, criminals never admit guilt. The jails are stuffed full of innocent people, according to them. But the few that do admit guilt... They always, you know, downplay it. So if he says he's in prison for stealing, he might actually be in there for stealing people's lives. (laughs) So, you know, give him some food and get him out of there.
0: Yeah, I agree. For once, you know, Smith's not
5: overreacting
0: at all, especially when none of the other real men are around (laughs) to offer any protection it's really kind of uh, it's
5: no being so naive but you know it's almost like well well if you want the wall then we don't want the wall you know so like (laughs) dude i mean you were for it before but just because smith is now for it you're against it uh i know
0: Later that evening, O'Han, showered, shaved, and refreshed, and wearing Smith's dreadful light-colored space fatigues that he ditched after the magic mirror, steps off the electronic elevator into the upper deck of the ship. I would have thought that Smith would be happy Owen's taking that unflattering outfit off his hands, but I guess not. <laughs>
5: that is kind of clever how they got rid of that, that tunic, because you never see that tunic again, and so we basically saw it walk out of the ship here.
0: Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. With an insincere smile and fake sympathetic tone, Smith greets the fugitive with a quick hello and goodbye, adding that he's sure the alien understands. Marine lectures Smith there's no need to be rude, and offers to allow Mr. Ohan to stay and rest a little longer. But in a deep, gravelly voice, the alien says, he's already placed them in enough danger. He must leave. Smith thinks that's an excellent idea, but the ladies are concerned. What will he do? He answers matter-of-factly that he plans to hide out until the authorities give up searching for him. But wouldn't it be better if he gave himself up, serve his sentence, and then make a new start, fresh and clean? Chuckling, Ohan says, they don't understand. For him, being a thief is not a job of last resort. It's his calling. On his world, it's a respectable and time-honored profession.
5: Oh, you know, I know that place Uh, where stealing is a time-honored profession. It's called, uh... oh yeah, Washington, (laughs) D.C. (laughs)
0: Oh, they've always got their hands in your pocket, don't they? Oh, yeah. Clearly unashamed and indeed proudly, he tells them he is following in the footsteps of his forebears. The Ohan reputation is respected throughout the galaxy.
5: Yes, I'm sure it is. Detecting that
0: note of cynicism, Ohan gives Dr. Smith a little lesson in humility by demonstrating his skills. Before he can object, the alien grabs Smith by the shoulders and spins him around telling the dismayed doctor that he's been robbed. Dubious, Dr. Smith replies, it's impossible. But with the flourish of a master magician, Ohan ceremoniously hands the surprised Zachary back his wristwatch. Well, that certainly impressed the ladies castaways, and it's clear that Ohan's no petty pickpocket. He thanks them for their hospitality, especially Penny, then bids them goodbye. Maureen turns off the force field so he can safely leave, which is funny because I thought it'd been established before that the force field prevents intrusions, but doesn't stop one from
5: exiting the camp. Hmm. Exactly. It not only works this week, it works so well that it keeps anyone from escaping. (laughs) I know, I know. Oh, boy. They need one of those in Stalag 13.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in any event, Penny watches as Ohan departs the ship, adding that she likes him and hopes they don't catch him. Scowling, Smith thinks her admiration is misplaced and with a huff, he steps onto the elevator to go check his cabin. He has probably been robbed. The scene ends on a light note with Judy and Penny giggling as they watch the sourpuss Smith descend
5: into the lower deck. You know, maybe if Penny discovers that her tape machine has been pinched, she might be a little less enamored with the thieves. (laughs) We'll have to wait and see. Next
0: morning, the family are outside the ship, seated at the picnic table, finishing breakfast. Dr. Smith, clipboard in hand, is assigning chores for the day. Penny already knows she's headed for the hydroponic garden, just like the last four days. But Maureen asks how Smith plans to occupy himself. As a matter of fact, he has an extremely heavy schedule today. But before he can continue, she finishes for him, saying, his day will be spent in the hydroponic garden. That's because Mom needs Penny's help with another job. Unless, of course, he'd like to help with that. Looking suspicious, the doctor asks what the job entails. Giving the Jupiter II a complete spring cleaning. The girls fight back laughter as Smith, wearing a face full of frustration, complains.
5: Trapped between being a farmer or a housemaid. Hardly a never choice? Before anyone can respond, the
0: mood is interrupted by the screaming howls of the hairy monsters approaching. <laughs> The castaways jump up from the table and scan their eyes in the direction of the grisly sounds.
5: The monsters, they're back!
0: Into the camp strides the uniformed alien we saw in the teaser, followed closely by those two furry beasts. They stop a few paces in front of our nervous castaways, and we get a better look at this second humanoid newcomer to Preplanus. Now, Kurt, you collect cards, but as you know, for years I've collected military uniforms and insignia, so I'm always fascinated with the outfits they give these aliens. In this case, Klimperer is wearing a simpler, if more futuristic, uniform than he got to wear on Hogan's Heroes. It basically just consists of a one-piece dark-colored coverall zipped up to the collar. And he's wearing this large-chained medallion around his collar, but it's not one of the recycled Andronican medallions from His Majesty Smith. So I guess that's a bonus. We actually get a new... (laughs) <laughs> a new piece of bling. Yeah. Uh, actually, this one had what looked like the Lowenbrow Beer Lion logo on it, so I'd love to know
5: the background story on that one. But the ba- I can tell you what the background story on that one was. Uh, it was the first piece of bling that was, you know, less than a dollar at the thrift store. <laughs> <laughs> Touché. Well, he's still carrying that
0: leather whip in one hand, and he's wearing ankle boots and a large leather belt with his service blaster in a holster. And topping off the ensemble is a regulation, silver-colored GI steel pot helmet that's been tricked out with a communication antenna above the right ear and this lyre shaped badge on its front. It It's simple, but sufficiently official, and I guess somewhat cutting-edge to fit the bill. Otherwise, the only difference between this character and Colonel Klink's appearance is that he's traded his monocle for a less-than-convincing painter's brush mustache, uh... What would you
5: think about that alien, Kurt? Oh, it made me laugh. I mean, that stupid antenna, especially. (laughs) And Klink is even wearing his helmet the same way he does on Hogan's (laughs) Heroes. Just tilted ever so slightly to the left, you know? And he sounds exactly like he does on the other program, too. What, with the slight accent and even that... The same voice mannerisms and sarcasm. Fortunately, I like Hogan's Heroes, so it didn't irk me like it would if I hated the program. But you do wonder why they bothered with the mustache if he's basically going to recycle the exact same character in every other regard. I'm surprised he wasn't wearing the monocle. I know. But I was wearing it on the other side.
0: I love that helmet tilted off at the little jaunty angle. That's just so yeah. clink, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. With an imperious tone, the official asks, "Who's the leader here?" Which causes a chuckle as Smith and Marine both answer, "I am." <laughs> the visitor introduces himself to our apprehensive space pioneers as,
4: "I'm Security Officer Bollocks of the Galaxy Law Enforcement Agency. I'm from the planet Toron. Our base headquarters." My identification.
0: Marine earnestly inspects the officer's credentials. And then so does Dr. Smith. After he allows everything seems in order, Bollocks snatches his ID out of Smith's hands. But before they can introduce themselves, the officer interjects.
4: There is no need for an introduction. I know who you are, where you come from, why you're here.
0: Maintaining his arrogant tone and demeanor, he adds that
4: there's uh, quite a file on the Robinson party in our office. You see, my office has kept track of all of your activities, especially yours, Dr. Smith. If that remark is meant as a slur upon my character, I resent it exceedingly. Sir, if you have a complaint, I suggest you file it with my superiors. Indeed.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Which is a line that Smith had used with the robot several times before. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I did think it was
0: interesting, though, that he said he was from the planet Toron. Mm-hmm. The home planet of the mute visitors from the sky is falling. But this alien speaks perfect English, just like Ohan. So I was happy when Judy asked an obvious question.
2: Well, how did you learn to speak English, Officer Bollocks?
4: Well, I've had special training. You see, we've been expecting travelers from Earth for quite some time. But never mind that.
5: Okay, I, I like that explanation about the English, except that it doesn't really make any sense. Why were they expecting visitors from Earth? This isn't Alpha Centauri. It's pre-planets all the way on the other side of the galaxy. I know. And, and they had this big file on the Robinsons, but yet they didn't come and rescue them. I thought they were police, <laughs> right? Or for that matter, why didn't the Robinsons say at that point, thank God, police, rescue us, we're lost in space, you know? (laughs) And if all that isn't enough, Cleek's special training in English doesn't explain how Ohan knows English. I appreciate them trying to explain it, but it's kind of a a lame explanation.
0: It was, it was. But the other thing is, they really don't seem all that stunned that there's a galaxy law enforcement agency. They sort of just take it matter-of-factly, oh, yes, we recognize your identification and hand it back to (laughs) Yeah, you know, like,
5: oh, everything looks like it's in perfect order. Here you go. Here's your paperback. Here's your badge back. Your low and brow is okay with us. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Bollocks has had enough of the small talk. He's ready to get down to business, and he asks
4: Where is Ohan? Now, before any of you answer, I warn you lying to a galaxy law enforcement officer is a very serious offense.
2: We have no intention of lying to you but you'll get a great deal more cooperation out of us if you don't bully us.
4: Mrs. Robinson, just answer my questions. Where is Ohan?
2: He's not here. He left last night.
4: What time did he leave? Eight, 10, 12 midnight?
2: Well, I'm not sure. We are not his
4: keepers, sir. Uh...
2: It was after eight, but what difference does it make? He's not here now, that's what counts.
4: Young woman, I shall ask the questions and you shall answer.
2: Now, just a minute. We're not a gang of criminals, and I won't have you treating us like one.
4: There's no need for belligerence, sir. No need at all. Mrs. Robinson, did you know that Ohan was a fugitive from the law?
2: Yes, I did.
4: Yet you gave him food and shelter.
2: He was starving and needed help. It was the least we could do.
4: Then you realize that you broke the law. You are guilty of aiding and abetting a criminal. Now I could place you all under arrest for that.
0: But Smith pipes in to refocus the haughty policeman on Ohan.
1: Oh, that won't be necessary, I'm sure. Now, let's not get unduly excited. Perhaps we made a little mistake, but under the circumstances, it's quite understandable. Now, Officer Bollocks, all you're interested in is Ohan. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, let me assure you, sir, he's
4: not here. In that case, if you don't mind, I shall search your spaceship.
2: Isn't our word good enough for you?
4: Nothing personal, Mrs. Robinson. I just do not trust anyone. Come with me.
2: Just a minute, Officer Bollocks. Now, if you would be good enough, please, leave these uh, animals out here. There's a great deal of delicate equipment inside. They might break something.
5: Or leave piles of poop. <laughs> uh, okay.
2: uh,
3: and squatty
4: potty. Uh, if you insist, Mrs. Robinson.
2: I'll show you around the spaceship. I'll go
0: with you. I guess I've watched too many TV police dramas, Kurt, but I was screaming at the TV when he says, In that case, if you don't mind, I will search your spaceship. I don't (laughs) care. I was screaming. I don't care how innocent you are. You never talk to the cops without a lawyer, and you never allow a search without a warrant, but they just sort of go along with the program here. I have a... I was amazed G.
5: <laughs> yeah. oh, lane you're beginning to sound like blm or something <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, didn't you ever watch the andy griffith show not all cops are nazis okay well maybe this would happens to be a nazi <laughs> but that was a whole nother lifetime don't you believe in giving people a second chance <laughs>
0: oh. oh boy that is funny well, Bollocks, accompanied by Marine and Judy, venture below deck to conduct that voluntary search while Smith and Penny wait outside with the bison twins. After a short inspection, it's obvious that Ohan's not there, which causes Marine to insist that Officer Bollocks cease and desist. But that's when he lets the girls in on his little secret. Ohan's escape from prison was arranged by the authorities themselves. You see, he stole something of great value, so they allowed him to escape in the hope that he would lead them to it. Bollocks turns back, rifling through their underwear drawers, which causes Marine to complain, and you expect to find it here on our spaceship?
5: In our underwear?
0: (laughs) (laughs) In perfect Colonel Clink style, he nods back and waves his hand dismissively. Yes, I expect to find it here on your spaceship Now do you mind if I continue my search?
5: <laughs> That's exactly the moment I was referring to When I said he was channeling Colonel clink sarcasm It was so obvious and so funny too The only thing that could have been more deja vu Is if, you know, major hostender Come marching in, snarling Ah, what is this person doing in here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, I know, it was perfect With the act drawing to a climax, we cut back outside, where Penny worriedly notes they've sure been in there a long time. Smith, fixated on the buffalo bloodhounds, absentmindedly answers something about Bollocks being a very thorough servant of the law. Penny says to herself, I wonder if I should tell him. Confused, the doctor asks, tell who about what? Pulling out a translucent, mini-donut-sized object, she replies, Officer Bollocks about this. This? Ohan gave it to her to keep for him. With a gasp, Smith quiets the girl with a shh.
5: You know, I'm so glad you're calling him Officer Bollocks, because that's what I have to call him too. <laughs> I can't help it. It's like, you know, and this isn't the first time Barney Slater has done that. Remember, he did that with the challenge. You know, he kept calling that kid, it sounded like Guano. You know, the yes. bullock sounds so much like Bollocks. I can't help it. <laughs> Well, I think he does it deliberately. I think that's a rider inside joke. Oh, it has to be. It has to be.
0: Lowering her voice, Penny explains, Ohan told her he'd come back to get it if he escaped, but if not, it was hers. Fascinated, Smith takes the object from the girl and gingerly places it in his palm. I wonder what it is. I don't know, says Penny, but it sure is important. Ohan said it was the key to the greatest treasure in the galaxy. Eyes widening with desire, Smith repeats in a whisper. Treasure? He said treasure? What else did he say? That's all. Just then, Penny glances back down at Smith's palm. Dr. Smith, look at it! The mysterious device begins to pulsate and flash, which elicits another gasp. (gasps) <gasps> from the good doctor. And the camera tracks into a close-up of the precious object.
5: Yeah, well, I bet you dollars to glowing donuts that Smith is not going to be giving that object up to Penny anytime soon. <laughs> or Ohan, for that matter. I won't take that bet, sorry. <laughs> well,
0: the stories just got very interesting, because if there's one thing that sure gets Dr. Smith's juices flowing, it's the word treasure. Can't wait to see where this is going, but we'll have to wait until after station identification to learn more.
6: Boston Space will continue after station identification.
0: This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, the camera is still focused on that strange, glowing treasure key in Dr. Smith's open hand.
5: The greatest treasure in the galaxy. Not a word of this to anyone, Penny. It must remain our little secret.
0: Warning, warning, danger, danger, Penny. (laughs) Exactly. Penny's not sure that's a good idea, but Smith is. After all, he says disingenuously... Ohan gave it to her, and she wouldn't want to betray his confidence. He shall take very good care of it. Oh yes, I bet he will. (laughs) A moment later, an empty-handed bollocks and the other girls emerge from the ship. Hearing them approach, Smith surreptitiously conceals the priceless disc in his hand and moves out of their way. Cutting his eyes side to side, Dr. Smith listens to the officer apologize to Mrs. Robinson for the inconvenience. But until Ohan is apprehended, he'll be in the area and drop in again later if needed. Marine starts to object, but Dr. Smith cuts her off. Do that, Officer Bollocks. We're always happy to see a representative of the law. Then you are an exception to the rule, Dr. Smith. Guilty or not guilty, people are quite uncomfortable in the presence of what you on Earth call a (laughs) flatfoot. Marine corrects the officer that they call them policemen, and as a rule, they're extremely kind and courteous. Bollocks smirks, adding that he seems to get better results with his own methods. (laughs) With that...
5: He bids them good day and departs with a crack of his whip.
0: As well do the
5: bison boys. Those bison boys—they remind me, for some reason, of the Thompson twins. Do you remember that little <laughs> dynamic duel <laughs> of rock? Bait? They seem to have similar hairstyles. But... Yeah, they did. They had big moppish hair too, didn't they? Yeah, Clink should have used that same whip at Stalag 13. He probably would have gotten better results too. I'm just saying. You yeah. know, he loved that thing. <laughs>
0: After he's out of earshot, Dr. Smith's expression changes from sweetness to irritation.
5: Thank goodness he's gone. Snooping around asking a lot of inane
0: questions. Judy offers a tame defense of the officer. After all, he was just doing his job. That may be true, adds Marine, but he'd get more cooperation if he weren't such a bully.
5: My feelings exactly, madam. I was just on the point of telling him so when he left.
0: Oh? With that, Smith excuses himself to get on with his hydroponic gardening. The ladies also retreat inside the ship to get along with their chores. As soon as they're out of frame, Smith glances back toward the airlock hatch to make sure the coast is clear, then pulls out his precious disc to gaze at it. He rhetorically asks himself,
1: A key to a treasure, but how do I find the lock?
0: No sooner does he utter those words than the key begins to flash again, and a disembodied voice responds to the question.
6: You wish information?
0: Confused, Smith looks around, but quickly adjusts.
1: Yes? Yes, I do.
6: Then ask your question.
1: Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh, Dr. Smith. I would like to know where to find the greatest treasure in the galaxy. Can you tell me?
6: Many others have wanted this answer. They were men of greed. All paid a grievous price. All met with misfortune.
1: Never mind that. Where is the treasure?
6: Before I answer, think. Will you settle for untold wealth over all
1: things?
0: (laughs) There's never been an easier question or a more honest answer for Dr. Zachary Smith. Face beaming with longing, he replies.
1: Yes, oh
2: yes, tell me. Dr. Smith?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Gasping a shriek of surprise, the startled doctor reflexively closes his hand around the disc. That's when Penny comes running up. Turns out Mom told her to help him instead. Chastising the girl for giving him a terrible fright, Smith explains that he was just on the verge of discovering their treasure. Untold riches, they're going to have them. But Penny asks, what will they do with them?
1: We will not stay on this wretched planet forever. One day soon we shall be returning to Earth. And on Earth, being rich means being powerful.
0: (gasps) Opening his hand, the device begins to flash again, which draws both their attention.
1: This is my lucky day.
6: You wished information...
0: Looking up at the sky, Smith answers.
1: Yes, yes. Where is the treasure?
6: It is you again. I had hoped you had changed your mind. Just
1: answer my question.
6: Very well. But it is required that I give you this warning. Use what you shall receive with wisdom. Do not let greed be your master. (laughs)
5: Well, that's a wasted breath on Smith, isn't it? But, you know, this is a really cool scene because it provides some interesting details about the treasure. For starters, did you notice that the narrator is blind? He didn't seem to know that it was Smith that summoned him the second time until he heard Smith's voice again. It almost gives the impression that the voice is disconnected to time as well because if he hadn't any recognition of time, Who else would possibly have the ring 10 seconds after the first question, except Dr. Smith? So I was getting this timeless genie vibe from this thing. You know, you call him and he answers, but he can't see you and he only exists during the time that you actually summon him. And as we're about to see, he could provide you untold wealth, but like so many genies before him, you have to be careful what you wish for because you might actually get it, but it won't be in the way that you want it. (laughs) Oh boy.
0: Wow. I like that. The timeless genie. That is good. Well, clearly, this disembodied genie has no idea who he's dealing with because Smith says,
1: Spare me the lecture, get to the point! As you wish. Take a
6: step forward, please.
0: The music grows tense as he cautiously steps away from the hydroponic garden.
6: Now close your hand tightly.
0: Which he does as both of them stare at Smith's closed hand.
6: Do you feel anything? What is it? The disc is getting warmer. Take another step.
0: The doctor's eyes widen in excitement.
1: Ah, the heat is increasing.
6: The disc will lead you to what you seek. As it grows warmer, so will you be closer to the treasure.
1: This reminds me of a game I used to play as a child. I think it was called Hot Potato, Cold Potato. Come along, Penny. Let's find our treasure.
0: But it's plain that Penny's worried and growing cold feet for this game. She says,
2: Dr. Smith? Maybe we should forget about being rich. I'm happy just like I am.
5: (laughs) You sure don't see that attitude in many adult women, do you, huh? I mean, if you did, the divorce lawyers would all go out of business.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, Smith isn't worried, and he's definitely not happy staying poor. He challenges Penny. Is she coming with him or not?
2: I guess so.
1: Good. Now let's find our pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
0: A second later, the disc in Smith's outstretched hand seems to take on the role of a high-tech divining rod. Smith gasps again as it seems to turn his whole body in the opposite direction
5: and pull him out of the camp, with Penny following close on his heels. You know, I couldn't understand why he invited Penny to join him on the search. He certainly doesn't plan on sharing the treasure with her. And he would want to keep it all a secret if he finds it. So that seemed a little bit of a stretch. But what with Will and the robot being gone, perhaps he feels that he needs someone to put in front of him in case he gets in danger, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I was wondering the same thing, and I was just thinking, well, maybe he wanted somebody along that could carry the treasure back to the ship for him, because ah. given his delicate back, he's imagining a treasure chests
5: full of jewels or something like that. I don't know. Okay, well, I'll give you points for that one. That, yeah. that could work. Or, like I said, you know, he, he does need that human shield. You never know when that can come in handy. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. But yes, you're right. Your larger point is correct. I don't think he's planning on sharing that treasure with
5: anyone. <laughs>
0: After traveling some distance, they pause in a clearing surrounded by bushes and scattered with boulders.
5: Ah, we're coming in loud and strong, Penny. The disc is so hot I can hardly hold it.
0: Gasping again, Smith turns on his heels and is guided by the treasure key as he steps sprightly a few feet further, approaching a cluster of waist-high rocks. When they reach the edge of the boulders, Dr. Smith screams and drops the disc.
5: Ah, it's burning my hands!
0: Standing before the rocks, at first it's not obvious to the pair what exactly they're looking for. Then there's a slight glowing from the middle of the cluster of rocks, and Smith notices a small opening, and he doesn't think much of it. But Dr. Smith reminds her that, quite often, good things come in small packages. Determined to claim his treasure, he reaches his entire arm into the opening, and after a little struggle, manages to retrieve a small cigar-box-sized container covered in flashing gem-sized lights. Okay, nitpicker alert here too. You saw a little blooper earlier. If you look closely, you can get a glimpse of the power cord that's attached to the back of that little treasure box. No doubt for all those pretty flashing lights, but uh, pay no attention to that, folks.
5: Oh wow, nice catch! You Blu-ray guys have all the sharp eyes, I guess. Yeah, and I even saw
0: that with my eye infection, so it was,
5: <laughs> it was, it was something. Thanks for reminding us about your eye infection. Now you just put a paw on the entire episode. (laughs) If only you had to see what I'm looking at through this thing. I mean, it's just like this this green-yellow pus is like... No, he looks fine, folks. Um.
0: Handling the box, Smith cries,
5: Rich beyond my wildest dreams.
0: Don't you think you should see what's inside before you count your profits? Good idea, Penny. Smith agrees and slowly opens the box, only to discover a familiar-looking metallic ring just about large enough to fit around a grown man's neck. Did that prop ring any bells for you, Kurt? Shall I
5: destroy? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Invaders from the Fifth Dimension.
0: Yes, it's back. An oldie but a goodie, huh? Yep. Well, it should have brought back some painful memories for Dr. Smith, but all it did was elicit a cry of exasperation.
5: Bah! I've been deceived. Cheated!
0: Penny fights the urge to say, I told you so. Instead, she picks up the object, saying, It looks like an old-fashioned key ring to her. Smith snatches the ring from her hand. It must do something. Looking around, he encants.
5: I want a chest of jewels, emeralds, rubies, and diamonds. Bring them to me.
0: Penny thinks they've been on a wild goose chase, but Smith's still clinging to his dream of riches. The thing must serve some function, but What? Who cares? Says Penny. They need to get back to the spaceship. Besides, they still have work to do. Very well, agrees Smith. But he decides to take the ring with. He can unravel this mystery later.
5: Yeah, maybe he could put it around his neck, you know, and it could be like hot potato, cold potato. When he gets closer to the treasure, it starts to squeeze. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting closer.
0: Later that night, we see Dr. Smith, ring in hand, slipping out of the Jupiter II. It's one of his favorite little moves. (laughs) making sure he's not being followed. He walks softly away from the ship, then pauses using the cover of a large rock formation at the edge of the camp to conceal his next move. He handles the ring and wonders aloud.
5: There's probably a simple solution for this. Perhaps it should be worn.
0: You're getting warmer, Dr. Smith. Giving it a try, he places the ring on one of his outstretched arms, then chants, Bring me gold! At that moment, Smith's experiment is interrupted by a loud. (laughs) (laughs) Startled, Smith quickly recovers and hides the ring behind his back, seconds before Ohan walks up quietly next to him. Wasting no time, the fugitive asks where Penny is.
1: Where's the little girl? Penny. She's asleep. Couldn't get her any earlier. Bollocks might have seen me. He was here today, looking for you. Ohan grins back. Let him look. I found the perfect hiding place. In a thousand years, he'll never find me. Then I suggest you stay there. I intend to. But first, I've got to talk to Penny. I gave her something to keep for me. You mean the disc?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ohan angrily grabs
1: Smith by the arms and asks, How did you know? Please, uh, Calm yourself. Penny told me. I presume by your attitude, you want the disc back? Yes. Go and get it for me. Well... Something wrong? No, no, nothing at all. It's just that it's quite late. I should hate to wake the child up. Why don't you come back tomorrow? I'd gladly get it for you, but she's probably hidden it somewhere.
0: Ohan releases his grip on Smith and agrees to the suggestion.
1: Very well. Tomorrow at the same time. You'd better have my property. You may depend on me, sir.
0: With that, he dashes out of camp, leaving Dr. Smith shaken, but relieved that he's gained a little more
5: time to fathom the puzzle of the metal ring. Well, did you notice something a little bit off about Ohan's appearance, given that it's late at night? You Blu-ray guys may have a better resolution, but does it equal better logic and deduction, sir? Hmm. Is that your final answer? Uh, uh, Can I get a lifeline? (laughs) No, sir. No lifeline. Ohan was scruffy when we first saw him, so we know he grows a beard. But it's well past 5 o'clock. In fact, it's around 10 o'clock right now, according later on in the story. We'll hear that it's around 10 o'clock, because that's when they're going to meet up again the following night. And there's not the slightest shadow of a beard. Now, granted, he's an alien. So maybe they grow beards a little slower where he's from, but we'll see the same clean-shaven O'Han this time tomorrow night as well. So maybe he did steal something from Smith's cabin, like a spare shaving kit. Ah, well, Smith's probably got a couple of
0: those left over from Attack of the Monster Plants, but
5: yeah, uh... yeah. maybe he didn't <laughs> notice. He didn't count them all. <laughs> Good point. I didn't catch that at all. Great. The reason it's so obvious is because on lost in space. They're not only clean shaven, they are smooth. I mean, it's like a baby's behind. It is really, really – they put the makeup on and everything and you can tell.
0: Well, it's one of the things I'm going to compliment them on later in the show with Dr. Smith, but I'll save that because he he actually gets a little scruffy himself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, once he's sure O'Han's gone, Dr. Smith turns his loving attention back to his precious prize. Turning it in his hands, it unexpectedly, I guess, snaps open, which elicits a little gasp of joy from Smith. For some reason, a delighted look of recognition crosses his face, and he spontaneously decides that the thing to do is place the ring around his neck.
5: Hey, it worked great the first time. <laughs>
0: He snaps it closed and then hides it under his turtleneck collar.
5: Well, this will do until I have time to explore it further.
0: Yeah. I still, I just can't get over the fact that he has totally forgotten about the last time he had a case of alien ring around the collar. He just, he just never seems to learn, but... Maybe he's hoping he can use a little whisk to get rid of it this
5: time. Uh. Yeah, Yeah, as if the collar was exactly the same as it was in Aliens for the Fifth Dimension. It's not a different color. It's not a different design. It is exactly the same one. It even has the same alien voice, you know? I thought my memory was bad but wow this guy really he never learns <laughs> he never learns he never learns uh, uh, well i mean that really is too much you know of all the voices they pick it's the same voice <laughs> 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 you know before we said that it's a pity they didn't bring back the save aliens from the fifth division but this is it they did <laughs> they did it it's <laughs> oh, great
0: as the act nears a climax, Smith takes one more careful look around to make sure the coast is clear. Adopting an innocent expression, he involuntarily touches his neck just to make sure that precious ring is still secure under his collar, then purposefully prances back to the ship. Reaching the hatch, he's greeted by Marine, who's pleasantly surprised to run into him. She thought he was already asleep. Wearing an exaggerated Cheshire grin, Smith replies, No, no, he's just been out enjoying a breath of fresh air. It's a beautiful night, isn't it? Maureen agrees and then asks if she heard him speaking with someone. No, no, just singing to himself. (laughs) (laughs) That little performance caused both of them to giggle and me too. I just thought that was so funny. (laughs) Then Smith abruptly changes the subject, noticing a lovely and conveniently located flower by the entry ramp. He plucks it from the ground, then invites the madame to enjoy its marvelous fragrance, which she does. He mentions that he'll put it in some water and keep it in his quarters. Good, she says. Then she bids Dr. Smith goodnight and suggests he do the same.
5: In a few moments, dear lady, sleep well. You too, Dr. Smith.
0: (laughs) With that, she heads back inside the Jupiter II, and once she's well out of earshot, Smith drops the fake smile. He looks back at the flower, noting that it seems to have lost its fragrance. Oh well, so much for putting it in a vase. (laughs) So he casually drops it to the ground. But the instant it hits the sand, we hear a (laughs) then see that flower transmuted from a freshly plucked stem to a solid metallic form of a flower. Smith emits another extended gasp of shock. (laughs) (laughs) Then carefully picks up the silvery object. Perplexed, he draws it near his face and examines it. But it only takes his experienced jeweler's eye a microsecond to recognize what it is.
5: Platinum. It turned into platinum.
0: Gears turning at warp speed, he connects the dots, then rolls down his collar with his free hand to reveal the metal ring, which we can now see is pulsating with cosmic energy. With a devious grin of satisfaction, Smith says to himself...
5: I've discovered the secret of the metal ring Platinum Oh my
0: Now it's obvious why the ring truly is The greatest treasure in the galaxy It gives one the power to turn any object Into solid platinum I'm betting that despite that voice's earlier warnings Dr. Smith is more than willing to risk his soul To be the lord of this ring But will the treasure ultimately be a blessing Or a curse We'll have to wait until we return from this commercial break To find out the answer
6: Lost in Space. Brought to you by...
3: Ring around the collar. Ring around the collar.
1: Those dirty rings. You try soaking them out, and soaping them out, and scrubbing them out. And you can still get... Ring around the collar. Now, try whisk. Whisk sinks right into the dirt. Starts to clean before you start to wash. Use whisk, and you won't hear, ring around the collar again. Whisk.
0: When we return from the break to start Act 3, it's next morning. Dr. Smith enters a sandy clearing some distance from the ship where the ladies are busy working on a large, familiar piece of equipment. Wearing an exaggerated smile, Smith's in an excellent mood, and we know why. He greets the ladies with a cheerful,
5: "'Ah, greetings, my fellow space travelers. What a glorious day!'
0: Judy replies, "'Good morning, Dr. Smith!'
5: "'It is indeed a good morning. The sun is shining, the future is bright.' All is right with the world.
0: Maureen notes that Smith's certainly in good spirits this morning.
5: As always, dear lady.
0: (laughs) As always, dear lady. (laughs) Since he's feeling so chipper, Mrs. Robinson offers the good doctor a wrench, asking if he'd like to lend a hand with the water conversion unit.
5: I would be delighted, but my back is extremely delicate today.
0: Mom responds only with a knowing grin at the other girls, and they respond likewise. Smith quickly changes the subject, announcing as he scoots over to a picnic basket on a nearby rock.
5: I'm literally famished.
0: (laughs) I can hear Don in my ear saying, You're always tired and hungry, Smith. That's your natural state.
5: (laughs) Spare me the poisonous bars, Major. Oh, wait. (laughs)
0: Don's not here. Okay. Oh, yes. (laughs) Penny tells Smith they finished breakfast hours ago. Munching on a sandwich, Smith allows that he overslept, but no matter. He's in time for lunch. With a smile, Penny responds... I know why you're so happy this morning, Dr. Smith You've discovered the secret of the metal ring <laughs> <laughs> Nearly choking on a bite, Dr. Smith barks back in alarm No pity! The girl realizes at once that she let the cat out of the bag Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith, I just wasn't thinking The camera switches back to Marine, who cuts her eyes toward Dr. Smith and asks the girl, what metal ring? She might as well tell everything now And she starts with the disc that Ohan gave her, which was supposed to be the key to a treasure. But before she can finish, Smith jumps in.
5: Ah, but all we found was a simple metal ring, completely without value. Judy asks, where's the ring now? Smith feigns
0: indifference, responding, It's around somewhere. Would you like me to get it? A skeptical expression crosses Maureen's face as she answers, Well, if it's Ohan's, then yes, he may come back for it.
5: Yes, I suppose so. Now, I wonder where I left it. Ah, yes, in the garden. Perhaps it would be best for me to go get it now.
0: Glancing at the half-eaten sandwich in his hand, Smith adds with a fake grin and even faker cheerful tone. Suddenly, I really am not particularly hungry. Hmm, that's a first. Penny offers to help the devious doctor, but he quickly declines any assistance. He knows exactly where the ring is. With a nonchalant, see you all later, he departs the girls, leaving the sisters with perplexed looks on their faces. Judy wonders aloud, what's wrong with Dr. Smith? He certainly lost his appetite in a hurry. Marine, on the other hand, appears unsurprised and knowingly responds that, based on past experience, Smith's probably up to some mischief, adding with a smirk that he had that look of, who me? I'm innocent. And that always spells trouble. All three ladies giggle at the thought, but based on our past experience with Smith, they probably should be sending out an SOS for Professor Robinson and the boys right now.
5: Yeah, but didn't they give some excuse about needing to go easy on the radio before they left? I seem to recall they sort of prepared us for that long radio silence. Yeah, they usually do something like, we'll have to conserve battery power, so we won't be able to talk that often, you know, one of those. Right. But, you know, that was in last week's epilogue. I don't think it was in the recap, so it's probably hard for people to remember that.
0: That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, next, the camera cuts to a grimacing Dr. Smith, who's trudging along the sandy path back towards the Jupiter II. Well, at least that's where I thought he was headed. But after lingering on a close-up of Smith's sly face as he pauses for a moment, the camera shows us the mischievous medicine man's true destination. It's the encampment of Officer Bollocks. Situated next to a rocky hillside, the galactic policeman is seated at a portable table, working under a striped tarpaulin canopy, surrounded by various bits of equipment and storage containers, and flanked by his two faceless woolly wookies who are on guard duty. Sadly, there's no sign of the spaceship that transported him to Preplanus. But then again, since he's from the planet Toron, it might have made sense that he teleported there, hmm? Yeah,
5: I love the way that all roads lead to Toron, you know. even (laughs) Even the space trader goes there for conventions. But you know, of all the planets in the galaxy, Toron would be the hardest one for police headquarters to actually operate well. I mean, just think about it. If the mutes from the sky is falling are any indication of typical natives, interrogations are going to be completely pointless. Everyone is going to evoke their right to remain silent <laughs> <laughs> Oh man Well, in any
0: event, at first, Officer Bollocks is unaware of Smith's arrival, and even his two hairy tracking beasts remain docile at the doctor's approach, emitting only a few low growls. <laughs> Still, that's enough to unnerve Dr. Smith a little and cause Bollocks to look up from his paperwork to greet his visitor.
5: Paperwork? (laughs) You're being too generous. He was doing nothing under that canopy except fidgeting with his space-age pen. Go ahead and see with your Blu-ray. You can see there are no papers there when he gets up. He looks pretty bored, too, but then again... You can never be too sure with that intent on his head. You know He might have been listening to the Ethernet radio and maybe even to Alpha Control podcast. Whatever he's doing, he was goofing off because he was there to find Ohan and not to man a police kiosk in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) But that's so funny. I did not
0: notice. There was no paper on the desk?
5: Yeah, yeah. You don't really notice it at first because the camera is kind of lined up with the desk. But then when he gets up and he walks over to talk to Smith, it kind of moves up and you can see on the table there's no paperwork. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Erwin couldn't even spring for a couple sheets of paper. (laughs) Well, you know. Then they would have had to maybe come up with a different language to put on the paper or something.
0: That's funny. (laughs) That's great. Wow. Well, regaining his composure, Smith answers.
1: There you are, sir. I've been looking all over for you. And as you can see, my search has been crowned with success. To coin a phrase, I always find my man.
4: Congratulations. Oh, please sit down, sit down. I shall have to make you a member of the Galaxy Law Enforcement Agency.
1: (laughs) Excellent idea. Officer Zachary Smith. Yes, it has a determined, honest ring to it, don't you think?
0: The camera cuts back to a close up of the steely eyed Bollocks, who's had enough chit chat for the moment. With an imperious tone, he asks Dr. Smith
4: All right, Dr. Smith, what can I do for you?
0: Very well.
1: How would you like to take Ohan into custody? you know where he is? No, but I know where he will be. At our campsite at about ten o'clock tonight. Taking him prisoner should be a relatively simple matter.
0: The camera continues to cut between close-ups of the two men's faces as Smith spins his web of deception and intrigue.
4: You surprise me, Dr. Smith. I was under the impression that you were in sympathy with Ohan.
1: And you disappoint me, sir. I gave you credit for much better judgment.
4: Now, according to my file, your past behavior hardly qualifies you as a, as a model citizen.
1: Obviously, then, your reports on my conduct are in error. My character is of the highest.
0: Rising from his chair and walking around his desk to continue questioning Smith, Officer Bollocks declines to argue the point further.
4: All right, I won't argue the point. Right now, I'm only interested in Ohan. Now, you're sure he'll be at the campsite? Positive,
1: he told me so. I shall be there waiting for him. Excellent! And may I suggest that you come armed? He might be dangerous. Until later, sir.
0: With that, Smith rises and starts to depart, but takes only a couple of steps before Officer Bollocks stops him with a parting remark.
4: Oh, by the way, Dr. Smith, did you know that there was a reward out for O'Han's capture?
0: In another beautiful example of theatrical staging like we've seen in previous episodes, Smith halts with his back to the officer, assumes a pious tone, and responds without turning to face bollocks. Instead, he subtly cuts his eyes over his shoulder in the fussy flatfoot's direction and answers,
1: The idea never occurred to me. However, if a reward has been offered, I should like the funds turned over to charity. I will be more than paid with the knowledge that justice has prevailed. Good day, sir.
0: With that, the mendacious medic walks out of frame, leaving a perplexed and perhaps suspicious Officer Bollocks contemplating that uncharacteristically selfless soliloquy from his confidential informer, Dr. Zachary Smith.
5: Yeah, but how quickly you forget that the real mission of Bollocks was to let Ohan lead him to the treasure. But all that seems to have been forgotten at this point, and for the rest of the show, really. And it's a shame, because... It was a nice twist to explain how Ohan got away, but I guess it would be hard to weave that idea back into the story without making it too obvious, you know, that they were shoehorning in that explanation. I enjoyed seeing Smith play Mother Teresa and donate the rewards to charity, but <laughs> he never says which charity, you know? Is yeah. it the ACLU or the We Build the Wall Foundation? You, know? <laughs> you, might th- you might think that would be the biggest clue yet that Smith had already found the treasure that Bullocks is looking for.
0: Yeah and if he really does have a file as big as he says on Dr. Smith he would
5: surely be suspicious by that little <laughs> that little speech that Smith gave don't you think Yeah and you wonder how do they accumulate this file you know do they have these little space <laughs> drones that are going around filming everybody this sounds pretty pretty eerie Yes, there's a probe droid on the planet Preplanus, your majesty. <laughs> we always seem to have it hovering around Dr. Smith for some reason. That's <laughs> where all the action is. Well, occasionally we let it fly off and follow Don and Judy when they go for the walks, but I won't get into that. <laughs> oh, dear. They call that drone porn. <laughs>
0: Oh, that is actually a term from the military when I was in the Air Force, but it, it doesn't have to, the meaning that we're taking at it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Drone porn's when they're watching them blow up Hajis over there in the Middle <laughs> East. That's sort of stuff. But I like your version a little better. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, wow. Well, later that night, we're back in the dead, quiet Jupiter 2 campsite. Dr. Smith and Officer Bollocks are positioned in the shadows at the edge of the camp, in the same spot that Ohan had visited Smith the night before. It must be nearly time to spring the trap, because Smith's nervously checking his wristwatch, while Officer Bollocks crouches behind that large rock so as to stay out of view from Ohan's approach. Turns out their target is late. It's after 10 o'clock. And the jittery Dr. Smith complains in a whisper that Ohan should have arrived by now. But just then, Smith gasps in alarm. Oh, I hear something. Smiling with confidence, Bollocks chides, You're nervous, Dr. Smith. Conscience bothering you?
5: Certainly not. Ohan is wanted by the law. By helping capture him, I'm doing my duty as a good citizen.
0: (laughs) Without a word, Officer Bollocks pulls out his sidearm which I could now see was almost identical in every way to the laser pistols that the Robinsons are armed with. Almost, except for the fact that the alien cop's gun has been spray-painted silver.
5: (laughs) Space-age silver, you know. It's not silver or gold paint that makes something different or futuristic in Lost in Space. It's a silver or gold grease paint painted on their face that does, you know, for the alien. Someone should make a Lost in Space drinking game where you take a shot every time those colors are used for those purposes. You know, we'd all get drunk as skunks.
0: Seeing Bollocks' unholsterous pistol causes Smith to emit another worried little gasp. Surely you don't expect trouble? The camera closes in on the two men's moonlit faces as he answers in a deadpan voice, You never know. Some give up without a fight. Others don't. Bollocks instructs Smith that when Ohan arrives, he's to go out into the clearing and meet him, adding for the doctor to be pleasant and get the fugitive to relax. Then he'll take over.
5: Officer Bollocks... Would it be better if you went out first and I stayed here?
0: The policeman calms Smith, assuring him that he'll see to it that nothing happens to him. Just do as he says. Before the uneasy collaborator can offer any further objection, the silence is broken by a strong psst. The moment of truth has arrived as both men turn their heads in the direction of the sound. That's him. You know what to do. It's dawning on Smith that he's not cut out for undercover police work, and he starts to demur, but bollocks hisses for him to... Go on, Dr. Smith. Reluctantly, the good doctor creeps out from under the cover of the rocks and enters the clearing just as we see Ohan approaching. The fugitive stops a few paces in front of Smith and must be expecting trouble himself because unlike the previous evening, this time he's come armed with an impressive-looking wooden club. Smith greets the visitor in a timid voice, but Ohan's far from relaxed. He suspiciously scans the area and declares that something's wrong. He can feel it. Smith tries to settle the felon's nerves, assuring him that it's his imagination. They are quite alone. That causes Ohan to refocus on his objective and ask Dr. Smith about his property. Does he have it? Uh, Yes, right here in my pocket. Uh, How have things been going for you? Well, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Ohan's not interested in conversation and orders Smith just to give it to him. With the tension building and the music approaching a climax, Smith tap dances.
5: By all means, but surely you have a moment or two to spare to have a little chat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The camera cuts to the eavesdropping bollocks, then back to Ohan, who impatiently accuses Smith of deliberately stalling. Club in hand, he moves towards the backstepping Smith. Believe me, Mr. Ohan. But before Dr. Smith can finish his excuse, Officer Bollocks makes his move, charging out from behind the rocks a couple of yards from the outlaw, ordering him to, Drop the club, you're under arrest. Enraged at Smith's betrayal, Ohan raises his weapon in anger and lunges towards the terrified doctor. Bollocks barks at Ohan, Stop, or I'll shoot. But before he can squeeze off a blast, Ohan turns and flings his club at the policeman, which takes Bollocks by surprise, causing him to lose his footing, falling flat on his rumpus. Instead of fleeing, the fuming fugitive turns his ire back on the panic-stricken smith, grabbing him by the shoulders and roughly
5: forcing him to his knees. Now you probably think I'm going to interject some sort of uh lewd comment about prisoners who've been in prison all this time, forcing (laughs) guys to their knees. But no, you know, as a professional criminal, someone needs to teach this guy how to strangle someone. You know, it really helps if you grab the victim's throat instead of their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he thought he was going to accomplish by that, you know, but maybe a a shoulder massage. Yeah. (laughs) I I think it's a good point. But then after I thought about it, I think it was
0: probably deliberate because if he had grabbed him by the neck, he would have felt the ring around and he would have known that Smith had the ring, don't yeah,
5: you think? Yeah, but that's, see, that's the reason why this is uh, like painful to watch, because it's so clear that he's doing something unnatural. Right, right. I get it. You're not going to not grab him by the throat because you're going to find the object that you're looking for. You know, If anything, it's been like, I need to grab him by the throat. You know, and if you find the ring, it's like, aha, there it is. But no, he's yeah. going way out of his way to not only not strangle Smith, the fellow actor, but also not to grab hold of the, the ring. So, yeah. yeah, well,
0: maybe Don slipped him a note and said, kill him any way you want, but leave the neck alone. That's my property.
5: Because <laughs> <laughs> he's always threatening to grab him by the neck. <laughs> and he always says, I want to wring his neck. Well, here, are the ring's already around it, so. Yeah. Yes, yes.
0: Well, Dr. Smith screams in terror for help. And a second later, it arrives in the form of Officer Bollocks' two howling hirsute horrors. <laughs> The shaggy beast emerge from behind some boulders and quickly subdue Ohan. Just then, Officer Bollocks regains his senses, dusts himself off, and rushes over to make sure Dr. Smith is all right. Shaken from the experience but not injured, Smith reports that he thinks he's okay. Relieved, Bollocks replies, Good. Then orders his bushy beast to take him away. It'll be the last we see of Ohan in this tale, And it made me wonder if getting his man would be enough to send Officer Bullocks on his way as well. Hmm.
5: Yeah, what about the treasure? Didn't Bullocks hear Smith claim to have it in his pocket just then? Clearly, Ohan thinks Smith has it. So that means he gave it to Smith or someone else who gave it to Smith. Klink must have hung around Schultz too long because, you know, he hears nothing.
0: That's true. He does. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Bollocks. I like that. <laughs> bollocks. Uh, Never mind the bollocks. Yeah. We haven't mentioned it yet, but bollocks is a British slang term, someone told me. That's what uh, I'm
5: talking about. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. That did, did you ever hear the Sex Pistols album, Never Mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols? Oh,
0: yeah. I forgot all about that. Okay. Okay. And bollocks, it just means something like... Um,
5: uh, yeah, It's testicles, l- if I had to spit it out. Yes. Yeah,
0: but they also can mean,
5: you know, oh, bollocks. I don't like that. Did I just say I had to spit on testicle? <laughs> I didn't mean that. That wasn't supposed to. Okay, go ahead. No, but uh, I, the way I think I've heard it
0: used before is where it's like, you know, people just say, oh, bollocks. It's it's kind of like something's all messed up. Like or
5: Yeah, like but that, it is but... a curse word. You know? Right, right, right. It is. Yes, officer bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's anyway. why I think Slater is having so much fun with this cuz he's we're saying it back and forth unintentionally. Yeah, I right. mean I know you don't say it intentionally. I say those sorts of things intentionally just oh, to I tweak you. <laughs> but when you say it it's like it must really be, you know, hard not to say it. Now there I went again with that, that I don't want to say hard in relation to this topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Well, as the growling creatures drag Ohan out of frame, Bollocks thanks Dr. Smith for his help. Catching his breath, he answers,
5: Glad to be of service, sir. Well, Officer Bollocks, I should think this winds up your case.
0: Hmm. Well, as you alluded to a minute ago, Kurt, something about that exchange really bothered me. Why would Smith think the arrest of Ohan would be the end of the case? I mean, we heard Bollocks say that Ohan's escape was engineered by the authorities in order to recover that valuable piece of property. Bollocks got his man, but not the prize. Was this just wishful thinking on Smith's part, or how did you interpret the scene?
5: Yeah, it was like a big in-your-face oversight, and one that they just assumed nobody would notice. How could Bullocks forget that the entire point in letting Ohan go was to find the treasure? If anything, he should be mad at Smith for foiling his plan. But it's like Ohan's perfectly shaved face two days in a row from <laughs> leaving mm. the Jupiter 2 We're supposed to just go with the flow. I was more concerned, though, about the handshake, to be honest. Last time Smith gripped a plant, it quickly turned to metal. And Bullocks was lucky he didn't become a copper with the platinum <laughs> physique. Yeah. It was just weird. Well, yeah. But, uh, but hold that thought. I
0: want to come back to that later. Well, once Officer Bollocks has departed the scene, the camera tracks in on Dr. Smith's face. Having survived this brush with danger, his earnest expression slowly melts away. Bringing his hand up to his collar, he exposes the pulsating metal ring of power as if to check that it's still really there. Reassured by its presence, a grinch-like smile crosses his lips, and once more, he appears overcome
5: with lust for his rich prize. The greatest treasure in the galaxy Now it's mine. All mine.
0: With the act nearing a close, it's next morning. We're outside the Jupiter 2. The camera is focused on a close-up of Judy and Penny. They're staring in amazement at the flower that Smith had turned into solid platinum a couple of nights earlier. As the camera pulls back, it reveals the girls are standing by the picnic table. Judy wonders aloud where Dr. Smith got it. Marine walks by saying that's exactly what she intends on asking him. Penny interjects that whoever made it must be a genius because it's perfect down to the last detail. Speak of the devil, unnoticed by the others, that certain genius emerges from the Jupiter airlock hatch and pauses at the top of the ramp. We can see that he's still wearing that pulsating precious metal ring because it's no longer hidden under his turtleneck collar. Still staring at the stem in fascination, Judy declares that If it wasn't platinum, she'd think it was a real flower. It is real, Judy.
5: I picked it.
0: Everyone turns to face Dr. Smith, who's wearing a very self-satisfied expression, as he strides down the ramp to join Marine and the grinning girls.
5: May I introduce myself, ladies? Dr. Zachary Smith, the man with the platinum touch.
0: Mm. Well, by the way... As Jonathan Harris walks down the ramp, sharp eyes might notice that just like a household vacuum cleaner, he's trailing a long electrical extension cord from his trouser leg that must have been used to power the blinking lights in that ring around his collar. I was impressed, though, that Harris managed to walk down that ramp without getting tripped up by the cord, but of course, who knows how many takes it took to get that shot right. (laughs)
5: That's another great catch that I missed And I should have noticed that because I suffer Similar clothing malfunctions Except in my case it's usually a long strand Of toilet paper Yeah, that's embarrassing
0: (laughs) Smith's flowery formal introduction Elicits giggles from Maureen and the girls Eyebrows raised Smith picks up one of the Robinsons' plastic dinner plates And holds it up like a magician Holding a hat before a rabbit appears Observe A second later with a That ordinary space aged plate is transmuted from a dull dish into a gleaming platinum platter. Gleaming so much, in fact, that it reflects the sunshine onto Dr. Smith's grinning face like a spotlight. (laughs) The girls are duly impressed and so astonished by the miracle that all they can manage are some approving ahs. (laughs) Turning to pass the dish to Mrs. Robinson,
5: he boasts... You see, even stale bread would taste delicious when served on this plate, madam.
0: For her part, Maureen looks suitably dazzled, but even as the precious plate lights up her face, she replies that just the same, she prefers her dishes to remain just as they are and hands it back to Dr. Smith.
5: She does have a point. Yeah, who needs platinum to impress your neighbors when you already have space age plastic plates?
0: Yes. <laughs> Bringing down the jolly mood a little, she inquires, Doesn't that ring belong to Ohan? Answering indirectly as everyone takes their seat at the breakfast table, Smith says,
5: I don't think he'll be coming back to claim it. Then, picking up a fork, he continues, You know, when I have the time, I must turn all my eating utensils into platinum. With
0: a piece of common silverware raised before him for a moment, we get another electronic... And the forks turned from cheap base metal into priceless platinum. Grinning ear to ear, Smith announces,
5: There. No sooner said than done. More smiles, giggles, and gasps
0: erupt from the girls, which causes Dr. Smith to offer,
5: Would anyone else like to dine like an emperor?
0: No thank you, answers Marine, Unoffended and still riding high on his own supply, the doctor replies,
5: I see... Well, everyone to his own taste, I always say. Turning to the needs of the inner
0: man, Smith uses his imperial fork to spear a delicious piece of link sausage from a serving bowl on the table. But before he can stuff his smiling face with it, there's an unexpected electronic. And in a flash, that sausage has been transmuted into solid platinum. Uh Uh-oh. Penny blurts out, Dr. Smith... "'Your food! It's turned into platinum!' The camera cuts back to Dr. Smith. With the link still raised inches from his mouth, gone is the beaming expression of joy on his face, replaced by a worried look of confusion and dread. Marine adds to the sense of worry, involuntarily saying, "'Oh, dear!' Staring at the sausage as if it were some strange specimen of insect, Smith suddenly drops it, fork and all, onto his platinum plate."
5: There must be something wrong.
0: I agree with Smith, because the creepy music is telling us that something is very wrong indeed. Mrs. Robinson thinks so too, and sensibly says that she thinks he should remove that ring.
5: Yes, yes, of course. Why didn't I think of that?
0: Smith reaches behind his neck to unlatch the nefarious necklace, but quickly loses his nerve when it won't let go.
5: I can't seem to find the catch!
0: Struggling with both hands to free himself from the grip of the chilling choker, Smith panics.
5: Please, help me!
0: Marine jumps up from her seat to assist the terrified doctor as the girls look on helplessly, but she quickly discovers that, why, it's just a solid metal ring.
5: There is no catch. There must be! It has to come off! It must come off!
0: Marine urges Smith to stay calm as she and the desperate doctor continue to feel with their fingers for a seam or any way to unlock the loathsome loop around his neck. But there's nothing there. Mom decides to go to plan B and tells Judy to go look for the metal cutters. But I've got a bad feeling about this Obi Wan. I don't think Smith's getting out of this that easily. Well, that fact must be dawning on Dr. Smith as well because as Judy
5: runs inside, he screams, Hurry! Oh I don't like this. There's something very wrong. I don't like it. I love this scene. I thought it was brilliant. It changes mood so seamlessly, no pun intended, but but I will correct you, mister Blu-ray, sir. No because Marine does not feel with her fingers the ring at any point. She gets close and she wants to help. You could see her fidgeting with her hands and stuff, but she never actually touches him and and I think that's what really sells this because you could see the frustration in her eyes and the fear. Mm, that plus the music and Smith's acting, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you corrected me on that cuz I did not catch that at all. I just assumed she was touching it, but that's good. A little consistency in the premise there is is always nice to see, although they don't they don't maintain that. <laughs> yeah well marine is still urging smith to calm himself and for a brief second he listens taking his hands away from the ring and reflexively picking up his coffee cup but before he can take a swallow the cup and presumably the coffee are transformed as well with a pop into solid platinum oh dear seeing this all mrs robinson can manage is a mournful oh dr smith The camera cuts back to Smith's anguished and grief-stricken face as he slowly pulls the shiny cup from his lips.
5: Oh, no.
0: He looks at the magnificent mug with horror, then drops it like a hot potato screaming,
5: No, it can't be true. It isn't possible. Oh, but it is possible, Dr. Smith. Oh, you know, Smith's panic is 100% believable at this point. The transition from happiness to horror is just wonderful to watch. You could just see his face change from gloating to embarrassment, then concern, then abject terror. I thought it was flawless. I did too.
0: Brilliant job by Jonathan Harris. Wearing a forlorn look, Penny starts to voice what we're all thinking If you can't get the ring off, Dr. Smith, you won't be able to eat. And if you can't eat, she doesn't finish the thought, but doesn't have to. As the camera cuts back to a close-up of Smith, a look of somber resignation washes over his face, and he finishes for her.
5: I'll die.
0: Maureen and Penny let out heartfelt sighs of compassion, but are left at a loss for any hopeful words to offer him. Smith's certainly enduring a classic example of what you said before, Kurt. Be careful what you wish for. And of course, it's not like he wasn't warned. But then again, when did that ever stop him? hmm?
5: Yeah, but you know, I love the fact that it's Penny that says what everyone's thinking. Because everyone else is adult and knows better than to actually say it. But she's a kid, so it makes perfect sense that she would be unfiltered and she would just blurt it out.
0: Exactly. Oh, great point. From the mouths of babes, right? Mm-hmm. So as this dramatic scene closes, and before we break for a word from our sponsor, the camera tracks in on Dr. Smith's pitiful face as he feebly wraps his hands around that pulsating ring, closes his eyes, and moans,
3: Oh no! 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 <laughs>
6: Lost in Space has been brought to you by...
0: Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by...
5: Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com.
0: When we return from the break to start the final act, it's later that night... Judy and Penny are inside the Jupiter II looking through the main viewport at the sorrowful sight of Dr. Smith, sitting on a folding camp stool surrounded by a few necessities. A sleeping bag, a Coleman lantern, and the tableware he'd earlier transformed into platinum. Maureen joins her distressed daughters announcing that they're all locked up for the night. Penny's heartbroken that poor Dr. Smith is locked out for the night, asking Mom, isn't there something they can do? Mom's afraid not, But Dad will be back in a day or two, and Mrs. Robinson's sure he'll know how to handle it. After all, he always does. Judy responds grimly, by that time it may be too late. Little Sis says, poor Dr. Smith. Mom agrees, it hurts her to see him that way too. Full of empathy, Penny remarks that the doleful doctor looks absolutely miserable. I agree, because not only is Smith wearing a woeful face... But he appears to have given up on shaving or combing his hair. It's the most haggard and unkept version of Zachary we've seen since he ate that poisoned papaya in the Oasis. So this is the props I was going to give to the makeup crew for that added touch of realism. And it's funny, like you said, they did it here, but they didn't maintain that with Ohan. So. Yeah,
5: but you know, it may have been because they didn't want us to feel sorry for Ohan, like, you know, at that point. Oh, that's a good point. And here, you know, when we see him haggard like this, we
0: definitely do feel sorry for Smith. Oh, we do. We do indeed. Yeah, that's a good way to interpret it. I like that. Penny asks Mom if she can speak to Smith through the communicator. Yes, of course. Go ahead, says Maureen. Picking up the microphone, Penny puts on a brave voice and transmits, Dr. Smith, I thought you might like to speak with someone. Hearing the girl's message, Smith snatches up the space walkie-talkie and answers back weakly,
5: what is there to say? I'm in the depths of despondency.
0: Maureen tries her luck at cheering him up, encouraging him not to give up hope.
5: For a doomed man, there is no hope, only darkness and despair. I'm alone, shunned by all.
0: <laughs> Maureen explains that they'd like to let him come inside the spaceship, but they just can't take the chance.
5: I quite understand.
0: I understand as well. Obviously, they don't want Smith accidentally turning the Jupiter two into a giant platinum paperweight. But there's something I don't understand about how the ring's King Midas curse works. We saw when Smith touched the flower, the plate, the fork, the cup of coffee, all those objects were transformed into platinum. And it seemed to happen automatically, without any act of Smith's will, because he certainly did not intend to transform the cup of coffee into precious metal. And of course, that was the point when he realized this is a curse, not not a treasure. On the other hand, since Smith's had that ring around his collar, we've seen him touching all kinds of objects, a sandwich, the chair at Bollocks' camp, Ohan for that matter during their struggle the night before, even that communicator he's holding in this scene. Yet none of those items pop into platinum. Help me out, Kurt. What gives here? Oh,
5: yeah. Ohan's moment would have been a real obvious one, too, as well as him shaking the hand of Bullock's. But, you know, he's suffering what you might call the the force field factor. It only works when the writers want it to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant, sir. Brilliant use of the language. (laughs) The force field factor. I love it. Yeah. Well... Still putting on a brave front for Dr. Smith's sake, Marine urges him to get a good night's sleep, and perhaps tomorrow they'll think of a way to help him.
5: I won't be here tomorrow. For the safety of all of you, I have decided to go out of your lives forever. Like a wounded creature, I shall go off into the wilderness to die.
0: Oh. In a commanding voice, Marine tells the doctor that's nonsense and orders him to stay right there.
5: My mind is made up. Farewell, dear friends. Think of me sometimes. (laughs) Farewell.
0: (laughs) Think of me sometimes. That's funny.
5: Yeah, whenever they're doing hard work. (laughs) (laughs) On the verge
0: of tears, Penny grabs the microphone from Marine and pleads, Oh, don't go, Dr. Smith. But it's no use. Smith slowly rises from his stool and gives a weak, royal finger wave goodbye, then slowly turns away and shuffles his feet out of camp as the female castaways watch, powerless to help him. Wow, I know Smith was pouring on the self-pity, but I have to admit, I was really feeling sorry for him too. That was some, (laughs) that worked on me.
5: Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, for once, he didn't blame anyone else for his problems. He even said he understood why he had to remain outside the ship, and then to top it all off, He leaves for the safety of everyone else. This is a rare side of Dr. Smith we've never seen before. Suddenly it's not so easy to celebrate his departure.
0: I'll say. Well, next morning the Robinson daughters are standing around Smith's abandoned gear. Judy just can't believe they'll never see Dr. Smith again. Penny begs her sister not to talk about it or she'll cry but their conversation is interrupted by the unexpected arrival of Officer Bollocks and just one of his growling beasts. I guess the other Wookiee was at the groomer this morning.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that or else Erwin was saving some money by cutting back on his hours. (laughs) Yeah, probably go with that answer, yeah. Hmm. Whip in hand,
0: the planetary policeman greets the girls with a soft interrogation.
2: Officer
4: Bollocks! Ah! That's an unusual-looking sleeping bag. I've never seen one quite like it before. Platinum, isn't
0: it? Both girls remain mute, which causes the grouchy gumshoe to bark that...
4: When I ask a question, I expect an answer.
2: Yes, it's platinum.
4: That's better. Thank you. Now, here's another question. Where is the ring?
5: Aha! So he not only knows where the treasure is, he knows what the treasure does. We didn't know that for sure before because he just described something of great value before. But the fact he knows what the ring does makes his later disbelief seem a little hard to believe, you know? Because later on, well, we'll get to that, but hold that thought.
0: Right. And he also squares the circle that we were asking before. He really isn't satisfied with just getting Ohan, although capturing him
5: made it harder for him to find the object, obviously. Well, you never know because he might have just come back to say goodbye and like, ah, but you know, it's a sleeping bag. Happens to be in platinum. I suppose the (laughs) ring is around here somewhere. (laughs) Uh,
0: That's great. Yeah, answers a lot of questions, but uh, there's more to come. Well, before the girls can answer where the ring is, Mom walks into the scene to face bollocks, answering for them.
2: Dr. Smith has it. Where's he? I don't know. He left here last night.
4: Oh, very conveniently so, wouldn't you say?
2: Officer Bollock, I think you'd better explain to me what this is all about. I'm not very good at guessing games.
4: Well, I am, Mrs. Robinson. It happens to be part of my occupation. Why didn't you tell me you had the ring? You deliberately held back that information.
2: That's not so. Mum knew nothing about it. O'Han gave me some sort of a disc to keep for him. I let Dr. Smith have it. We found the ring together.
4: And, uh... When you discovered the truth, you realized how valuable it was and you decided to keep it for yourselves.
2: Oh, you're completely wrong. But
4: there was only one problem. Ohan. He represented a potential danger, so you decided to betray him.
2: But we haven't seen him since he left here. How could we betray him?
4: Oh, Ohan tells quite a different story. What? But uh, let's skip that part for the moment. Let us talk about Dr. Smith. Now, you say he's not here. That he has the ring, but you don't know where he is.
2: At least you have that part right.
4: Oh, I'm delighted. Now let me ask you one more question. Why did Dr. Smith leave?
2: Because he can't get the ring off his neck. Everything he touches turns to platinum. Even the sleeping bag. He isn't even able to eat. He left because he knew he was a danger to us.
5: I'm going to walk back some of my earlier criticism. Maybe he was just pretending to like, oh, thank you very much, Dr. Smith. You've done a wonderful job. I'll be on my way now. So maybe him capturing Ohan and appearing to be content and leaving was a setup so that whoever really does have the ring, whether it's the Robinsons or Dr. Smith or hidden somewhere, that they're going to take it out at that point. You see what I'm saying?
0: I see what you're saying.
5: And that's some serious... It's, It's... 4D chess here. <laughs> it, it, it's giving a lot of credit, especially for Klink. I mean, t- I <laughs> it definitely doesn't sound like something Klink would do. But this isn't Klink. Technically, it's Ohan. So it's possible. Yeah, technically, it's bollocks, you mean. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. You're right. It's, it's bollocks.
0: Yeah, that, that is some wonderful theoretical <laughs> speculation
5: you have there.
0: But
3: dismiss.
0: Uh... <laughs> If only we could have been in the writers' rooms with these <laughs> guys, <laughs> right?
5: And when Irwin asked him this question, but well, this doesn't make any sense. Why is it? Oh, but you don't understand, Irwin. <laughs> clink is not a regular clink. This copper's got balls. He could think. He's bollocks. <laughs> He's bollocks.
4: And this is the story you expect me to believe?
2: It's the truth.
4: Perhaps you'd like to think about that for a few moments, and after some reflections, you might want to change your minds.
2: I'd have nothing different to tell you.
4: All right. In
2: that case, you're all under arrest. No. By
4: the time we get back to the enforcement headquarters, you may want to change your mind.
2: Well, you can't take us away from here. My husband won't know where to find us.
4: You should have thought about that before you lied to me, Mrs. Robinson.
0: Come along. Mrs. Robinson objects and pleads with the officer that all he need do is find Dr. Smith, and he'll see that everything they've said is true. Oh, I'll find Dr. Smith, all right. Don't worry about that. But first, I'm taking you into custody. But before he can, Penny cries out that she won't go with him and dashes out of the Jupiter campsite. Bollocks draws his gun but refrains from shooting the escaping girl and restrains his furry beast from chasing after her as well. Instead, the interstellar investigator settles for taking the two remaining Robinsons into custody and motions with his laser pistol for them to get moving, which they reluctantly do.
5: You know, you just said that He said he was taking them into custody before finding Smith, which kind of makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is what he actually did say, which was that he was taking them back to headquarters first, which is light years away. Now, he mentioned he was from Toron, So this remark, if taken seriously, infers that the mode of transport is teleportation. Otherwise, Smith would have ample time to escape while Bullocks is flying across the galaxy. But either way, it does provide an element of terror to think that they're being carted off while everyone else is gone, all the men are gone, and they don't even get to leave a note, let alone a phone number or any way for John and Don to contact them when they return. So their only hope is that Penny... Doesn't get eaten by cannibal plants or by you know cyclops or a mutant sand beasts or whatever while waiting for the men folk to return home, and that she will somehow fill in the blanks for them. Not that it will do them any good because her spaceship doesn't operate. Mm. So this is just like wow. Yeah, that's a good point. He did say it. Now that you refresh
0: my memory, he said he was going to take them to headquarters, didn't he?
5: Yes, he did.
0: And that's interesting. You also make a good point because Marine even says, you can't take us away. When my husband comes back, he will have no idea where we are. You know, so that would be a terrible dilemma for them. And even so. if
5: they didn't know where they are, what could they do?
0: Their spaceship doesn't move. You know? Exactly. huh. Well, moments later, we're with the gaunt and disheveled-looking Dr. Smith, sitting on a large, platinum boulder, hands clasped before him wearing a truly pitiful expression.
5: Oh, dear. Oh, oh.
0: Just then, we're shown a quick shot of the -the on-the-lamb penny trekking through the sandy brush-covered terrain, calling out vainly for Dr. Smith. Suddenly, the girl is stopped in her tracks by something. Then she slowly steps closer towards the camera, which pans down to reveal the sight, which has Penny mesmerized. It's a good-sized sapling full of spring leaves that's been totally transformed into solid platinum. It's beautiful, but after everything else that's happened, it's also a little chilling. Penny blurts out loud to herself that Dr. Smith came this way. Looking around, she sees another bush that's been transmuted into metal and skips over to that one. Then there's another and another. She must be getting warmer because in the next cut, we're shown Penny jogging through a literal forest full of shiny platinum bushes and trees as she continues to call out for the missing doctor.
2: Dr. Smith, where are you?
0: Finally rounding a tall aluminum foil-covered boulder, Penny arrives at Smith's lonely but sparkling resting spot. Oh, thank goodness I found you. But Smith recoils in horror and shrieks. Stay away, Penny. Dr. Smith,
5: you've got to help us. Officer Bollocks has arrested Mom and Judy. There's nothing I can do. I'm a dying man.
0: In desperation, she tells Smith that Bollocks is going to take them all away to the law enforcement headquarters on a different planet. I'm sorry, Penny. She presses on, explaining that the officer thinks they're lying about Smith being stuck with the cursed ring. Still wallowing in his own misfortune, he responds,
5: It doesn't matter anymore. I'm done for.
0: Penny takes a step closer to Smith, which causes him to lurch backward on the rock to keep his distance. She pleads, Oh, but if you go to Officer Bollocks and he sees that we told the truth, he'll let Mom and Judy go. Hanging his head down in defeat, Dr. Smith wails,
5: Go away, Penny, and leave me to die in peace.
0: Having taken his eyes off the girl for just a second, Smith fails to notice as she thoughtlessly steps closer and reaches out to embrace the doctor and perhaps shake him out of his funk. Feeling the girl's hands on his shoulders does shake Smith. He screams, springs up, and reflexively pushes her back away from him. But it's no use. In a flash, as Penny stumbles out of the frame, we hear the ring's heartless electronic... Ah! Then silence as the trembling Dr. Smith gazes in shock at the sight of a solid, platinum Penny Robinson.
5: Oh no! No! Penny, what have I done to you? Oh no!
0: Unable to bear the tragedy of what has happened, Dr. Smith scampers away through the forest of silver-colored trees while the camera pulls back to show us a full, head-to-toe view of Platinum Penny, left all alone and still as a statue. Now here's a question for you, Kurt. How did you like the way that they handled the transformed version of Penny? I mean, using Angela Cartwright, wearing silver clothes and some more of that silver grease paint on her face, versus like a silver-painted mannequin, for example. Remember the old uh, rubber nexus? Did you like the way they did it this way?
5: Yeah, I, I thought it was the best choice that they had. You could see her eyes were not platinum, and she was moving ever so slightly, but she never blinked. And let's be honest, a mannequin or dummy, that would have cost extra, you know? So guess which <laughs> option Irwin chose, right? But they, they had to—they uh, that, that would have looked less convincing, really, I think. What got me, though, was seeing how hard Smith tried to avoid touching her and how horrified he was when she touched him and she turned into platinum. I was feeling bad for him now, even more sorry for him than Penny because it was quick and painless for her— but he's suffering every which way there is. he's hungry, he's guilt ridden, and of course he's icky from not having to shower or a shave. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> That's right. he is icky. yeah, that was a dramatic scene and and you just knew what was going to happen, but it the way it played out, it really it really worked well.
5: I thought It was convincing, and the fact that he made every genuine effort to keep her from touching him. I thought was, you know, uncharacteristic for him. He really seemed more concerned for her than he did for him. Because, you know, Smith loves to have sympathy. So having someone come up and hug him would have been a natural for him. But no, he was terrified of the thought. He was. He definitely was.
0: Well, next we're on the trail back to the encampment with Clink. I mean, Officer Bollocks, and his prisoners, followed by his lumbering, shaggy assistant. As the officer offers... Believe me, this is just as unpleasant for me as it is for you. (laughs) (laughs) Marine seriously doubts that. Bollocks counters that he has no alternative, but if she'd only tell him the truth. But she already has, and he won't believe her. So there's nothing more she can say. Before Bollocks can respond, Judy shouts, Look, Dr. Smith! Walking as if in a trance, the careworn doctor approaches the group and halts silently a few paces face-to-face with Officer Bollocks. Marine's so glad to see him and asks about Penny, but before allowing Smith to react, Bollocks takes over the questioning. "'Sir, you have saved me the trouble of hunting you down.' In a deadpan voice, Smith responds, "'You are to release these ladies at once.' Bollocks scoffs at the suggestion. "'Oh, I don't think you're in any position to give orders. You're under arrest.' Staring down the officer, Dr. Smith answers,
5: "'Mrs. Robinson and her family had nothing to do with the metal ring.' I, and I alone am responsible.
0: The alien cop sneers back that it's very noble of him to take the blame, but Smith's wasting his time. Judy blurts out that the officer thinks they lied to him.
5: Officer Bollocks, release my friends, or I shall turn you into platinum.
0: Chuckling, Bollocks laughs at the threat. Dr. Smith, I gave you credit for more intelligence than that. Then I must prove it to you. Reaching down, Dr. Smith picks up a potato-sized stone from the sand, holds it out in front of his chest, and with a... It transforms into solid platinum. For once, Bollock seems at a loss for words. His mouth falls open in astonishment, and a look of dread comes over his face. Casually dropping the silver stone to the ground, Smith's eyes darken as he inquires,
5: Now you will release them.
0: Bollocks stammers out a feeble attempt to make some kind of arrangement with Dr. Smith, but the balance of power has shifted radically, and Smith's in no mood to bargain. Stepping toward the unnerved policeman with a threatening, outstretched
5: index finger,
0: Smith commands,
5: Officer Bollocks, you and your animals will leave this planet at once, never to return.
0: Well, this has the desired effect on Bollocks and his animal, who backpedal away from the determined doctor while Marine and Judy silently but approvingly observe. With his deadly index finger mere inches from the rattled officer's nose, Smith makes a final little jab that causes both Bollocks and his fuzzy friend to head for the hills.
5: You know, he's got his gun right there in the holster <laughs> Yeah, the same one he threatened to shoot penny the little kid with never mind the bullocks here's the sex pistols i mean use it <laughs> don't run <laughs> don't they provide any weapons training on tauron you know I mean, yeah like i alluded earlier he acts incredulous about the power of the ring and yet earlier when he saw the platinum sleeping bag he knew what caused it so lots more force field factors i suppose but on the other hand I was so impressed with Smith's willingness to risk his own skin. I still like this scene a lot. Oh, I did too. I did too. You know, I won't call it
0: terrifying, but it did build the tension as he walked closer and closer to Bollocks with his finger.
5: But I'm always reminded of that scene in Indiana Jones, you know, with the guy with the sword, you know. Pull the darn gun and shoot him Yeah. <laughs> That's funny with the knives. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Well, once the officer and his animal are gone, Dr. Smith turns back to face Mrs. Robinson and Judy, encouraging them to return to the Jupiter 2. Marine begs Smith to return with them. She's sure they'll find some way to get that ring off his neck.
5: I shall return to the wilderness. It's a fit place for a creature like me.
0: Judy changes the subject, asking, Where is Penny? Yes, Marine asks. Where did he leave her? Smith doesn't answer directly. Instead, he whimpers...
5: I haven't the courage to tell you.
0: Which leaves the ladies perplexed, but before they get any clarification, Dr. Smith runs out of the frame, back into the wilderness to die, leaving Marine shouting after him and both women with more questions than answers. Moments later, we see Dr. Smith slowly walking back into the clearing with Platinum Penny still frozen in place where he left her. He approaches the girl and draws his grief-stricken face near her silvery cheek. In an extended, extreme close-up of the two characters, we can see Angela Cartwright is doing a masterful job of remaining as still as she can and never even blinks, as you said, which was amazing. Leaning in closer, Smith speaks softly.
5: Oh, Penny, forgive me for what I have done. Forgive me.
0: Then he gives the frozen girl a gentle kiss on the cheek.
5: I thought for sure she would blink when he leaned in towards her face, but she was still a stone,
0: like a pro. She really was. Resigned to his fate, Smith slowly steps over and sits back down on his platinum boulder, which, given its size, must be worth a king's ransom. But to the shattered and broken Zachary Smith, it's just as worthless as the sand it's resting on. Borrowing another line from literature, this time the Bible, Smith asks out loud,
5: Oh, death, where is thy sting?
0: But instead of death, Dr. Smith receives an answer from the disembodied voice. Foolish, foolish man. You had everything necessary
6: for happiness, and you gave it all up for what? A cold,
5: unfeeling metal. I know I deserve to be punished, but not penny. The child is innocent. She shouldn't have to suffer because of my folly.
0: The voice counters with a classic line spoken by parents down through the ages.
5: You should have thought of that earlier. I know. But now it's too late. What a miserable wretch I am.
6: Perhaps you have learned a lesson, Dr. Smith.
5: Oh, I have.
1: I have.
6: Then for once I will make an exception.
5: I will spare you. I don't care about myself. It's only Penny I want
0: saved. But the voice goes silent, and as the camera zooms in on his exhausted face, we can also see that the metal ring around Smith's neck has stopped pulsating with cosmic energy. Dr. Smith stands up, and looking around in desperation calls out sternly,
5: Where are you? Don't leave. You've got to make Penny normal again.
0: But there's still nothing but silence in the air, Defeated, Smith slumps back down on the rock and starts to whimper once more. But before death's sting takes him away, we see a little girl's hand reach into the frame and touch Smith's drooped-over shoulder. Then, a familiar sweet voice speaks, I'm fine, Dr. Smith. Without thinking, he answers back,
5: Yes, dear.
0: Then, gradually a look of recognition mixed with a little trepidation creeps over Smith's face. He slowly turns his head towards the sound of the voice. When the camera pulls back to reveal a perfectly normal Penny Robinson standing next to him. He's overcome with joy and relief. Grasping the girl by the arms to make sure she's real, he gasps.
5: Penny, you're alive. Oh, thank heavens.
0: Dr. Smith jumps up from his perch and gives the girl a warm embrace and another kiss on her very unsilver colored cheek.
5: Oh man, I, I was so completely choked up over that scene, especially when he sincerely demonstrated that he would gladly lay down his life to save the dear child, which by the way, was exactly what he said at the very beginning of this episode when he was on the ramp with the Jupiter Two. you know, after running for Mohan. So this is quite a transformation. I also like the way that he didn't know whether or not his King's Midas touch was gone or not. But that doesn't stop him from grabbing and hugging Penny, you know? Yeah. Because he couldn't tell that his his ring was no longer pulsating. It would have been a real bummer if she had turned back to platinum at that point. (laughs) That would have been. But that's a great
0: point you mentioned. He did start the episode out by declaring that he would give his life for that little child. But, of course, we didn't believe him then. But now he truly means it. So it is quite a transformation. It is a beautiful scene. It's great.
5: And all laughing aside, I mean, I was even just now going through this thing again. I It brought... Wa- tears to my eyes, and and I don't have the eye infection that you do, so, (laughs) you know.
0: Well, I was thinking, when I was writing this out, I was thinking, man, I don't know if I could get through doing all these lines, because it got me choked up as well, so bravo, sir. Well done. Well, Penny's not sure what to make of all this, but she's happy to report she's perfectly fine. Beaming with delight, Smith testifies.
5: Oh, my dear child, I've learned my lesson. From now on, I'm going to be a changed man. The old Dr. Smith is gone, and I hope soon forgotten. I'm going to try to be the kind of man that you all want me to be.
0: (laughs) Penny's delighted, too, but just then she notices, Dr. Smith, the ring, it's gone out.
5: What? What?
0: Grabbing at the ring around his collar, Smith discovers,
5: And it has a catch! It will come off!
0: And with a little effort and a hearty, Ha! It does come off which causes the relieved doctor to spring to his feet once more and declare,
5: Ha! I'm free! Saved! Alive!
0: Both Smith and Penny stare at the unlatched object with glee, but the victory rally is happily interrupted by the off-screen calls of Marine, who's still searching for her missing daughter.
5: Penny! Hey, you know what? I thought it was interesting. Penny acted like she didn't even know that she had been turned into platinum. She just says, I'm fine, Dr. Smith. You know, it's like she didn't even know that that time had transpired. She'd been there for, you know, 10, 15 minutes or whatever while Dr. Smith went and talked to the other people and came back and went through all these gyrations and stuff like that. But she apparently had no recollection of being turned to platinum. That's a good point. And I would follow that up by saying Dr. Smith doesn't tell
0: anyone <laughs> That's right. that she was turned into platinum. They don't have any idea. Now, maybe he'll tell later what happened. But for now, it's his little secret, isn't it? Yes, it is. In the closing moments of this fable like story, Mrs. Robinson and Judy quickly spot Penny and Dr. Smith rushing over to join them. Mom's relieved that Penny's all right, which Smith assures her is the case. Penny tells the others that Dr. Smith's turned over a new leaf. He's going to be a model citizen from now on. Oh? Yes, I am. Judy thinks that's wonderful and so does Maureen, but she cautiously reminds the good doctor that it'll take a little effort. Smith's eyes widen at the thought of effort, but Penny jumps in to ask, what about the ring? Smith answers by flinging the horrible hoop down in the dirt with a disgusted...
5: There. Judy's surprised. Doesn't he want it anymore? I've turned over a new leaf, my dear, and I've learned that all that glitters is not gold, and the same may be said of platinum. <laughs> that causes
0: all three ladies to giggle in agreement with Smith. With the excitement over, Marine suggests they all get back to the spaceship. It's getting late. As they start back, they only take a few steps when Dr. Smith pauses by a tall, silvery boulder and notices a familiar looking platinum flower shooting out of the rock's side.
5: Well, what have we here?
0: As they stop to admire the blossom, he quickly plucks it from its sprouting spot, draws it near his face, cuts his eyes over to the Robinson
5: girls, and muses, Someone might as well have it, and it might as well be me. (laughs) Everyone gets
0: another chuckle at the newly reformed Smith's last little performance. But Maureen shoots a knowing smile to her daughters as if to say that in Dr. Smith's case... Old habits die hard. With that, the foursome continue their trek back to the Jupiter 2 as we conclude this whimsical and touching tale with another cheerful, happy ending.
5: Yeah, but did you notice that the flower wasn't growing out of the ground? It instead was growing out of the boulder? Yes. It must have had some really strong roots. But the best part was that it wasn't just any flower, it was the exact same flower that he turned to platinum early on the Jupiter (laughs) 2 ramp. Remember that one? Down to the very last leap and (laughs) petal. So so they're not only recycling the bear suits, the ring around the collar, and even the ring's voice from the other episode in this episode, they're recycling things from this episode Uh... within the same episode. (laughs) Erwin, can't you afford to spray paint a different plastic plant for Pete's sake? I mean, after all, it's not real silver. It's only silver
0: Paint. <laughs> uh, oh, that just cracks me up. I wish I could have met Erwin Allen. He had to be a larger than life character. I'd, I swear.
5: Yeah, I'd love to take that guy out to lunch, but <laughs> I have a feeling I know who's going to be reaching for the check. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: boy. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt,
5: give us your thoughts on All That Glitters. Well, let me give a little bit of backstory here. I happened to watch this episode of Christmas, and my wife and kids were thousands of miles away visiting Grandma. So I was alone at home watching this, just me and the blinking Christmas tree. So when Penny gets turned into metal and Smith becomes quasi-suicidal, naturally, all I could think about was my own little girls, and it was gut-wrenching. So I admit, I was especially susceptible to its charm. But watching Smith turn over a new leaf, even if it was just for a few seconds, it was a great feeling. And as I looked over at the Christmas tree, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, they're not only recycling, you know, the King Midas theme here, they're actually using the Charles Dickens, a Christmas carol theme going on here, because Smith is basically playing Scrooge. Now, you might think, yeah, but Scrooge made a real change, whereas Smith only lasted for a minute, but not so fast. You know, I never read a sequel to A Christmas Carol. Did you? You know, who knows how long Scrooge really remained generous after his conversion. It says he was at Christmas time into Tiny Tim, but what about his attitude to the rest of the world for the rest of his days? You know, I don't want to be pessimistic here, but chronic selfishness is a little bit like any other vice. It's an addiction and it's hard to quit. So all that Mm. being said, I enjoyed this episode a lot, despite its many flaws. Continuity was not its strong suit, that's for sure. But seeing Smith come through in the end makes it impossible to forget this episode. And I enjoyed watching it multiple times. It's not top 10, I mean, it's probably not even top 20, but it's definitely, definitely worthwhile. And no matter what Smith does from here on out, I'll never forget the fact that for once in his life, we saw inside his heart, and guess what? He actually has one. So thank you, Barty Slater, for writing a script that actually proves that.
0: Wow, all I can say is amen to everything you just touched on. And that's going to allow me to be very short and sweet with my assessment, but I'll start with a little trivia. You'll recall I promised you, Kurt, a little tie-in for the howling sound effect used for bollocks's shaggy bloodhounds. Well, according to several online sources, that screaming sound was, in fact, the inspiration, if not the source, of the TIE fighter sound effects used in Star Wars. Oh, wow. Yeah. As a matter of fact... That same creature sound effect from the Fox Library was used by Irwin Allen as dinosaur roars in his 1960 feature film, The Lost World. And there's a nice YouTube video that compares the dino sound effect with the TIE fighter sound effect that I'll link to in the show notes. And it would kind of make sense that they pulled that sound effect mm-hmm. from the Fox Library. And then I think his name was Ben Burt, was the sound effects designer for Lucasfilm kind of took that and modified it. But if you do a side-by-side comparison, you'll hear the similarity instantly.
5: Oh, yeah. Now, the moment you say it, it's like, yeah, that's right. It's just like... I mean, because we all know that that sound's been burned into our... But it's funny, you know, if we had heard another monster on another program use that same sound, we probably would have said, hey, that's the same sound from Lost in Space Monster. But because it was a TIE fighter, and it's not even an organic... Creature at all. Right. We never made the comparison, and we all know that sound. I mean, that sound and the sound of a lightsaber are two of the most famous sounds from Star Wars. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's just incredible, and we know that yeah. Star Wars has borrowed heavily from Lost in Space before. So it wouldn't surprise me if they might not have even approached that sound, saying, "We got to get the sound of that monster that they use. That'd be great for the Tie Fighter." <laughs> you know, who yeah. knows.
0: Remember the Volta Blades. Yes. Remember the Volta Blades. Absolutely. Great
5: point. Great point.
0: Well, I'll just end by saying, yes, I really liked this episode. But again, the absolute highlight was the emotional performance that Jonathan Harris gave during the climax of the story. Commenting on his performance, Cushman said, You're completely justified letting your emotions crest and perhaps a little moisture collect in your eyes. This may be Jonathan Harris's best moment on film. It's arguably Dr. Smith's, and I have to agree. This episode was not particularly heavy on sci-fi, but it was strong on heart and soul, and what's not to love about that? Yep. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode, and this one's a doozy. The scene opens some distance away with several nice stock shots of the chariot crawling at a good pace over the rocky terrain as twilight has fallen on Preplanus. The narrator informs us that the rest of our intrepid space colonists, including the robot, are on a vital mission of their own, searching for a new water supply to ensure the survival of the entire group. It is a mission that will lead them directly into, as the robot warns, danger, danger. Just then... Thanks to some additional stock footage, a giant volcano erupts, shooting streams of ash and lava in all directions. Don shouts for the professor to pull over and seek shelter from the deadly flying debris among some nearby rocks. But inside the chariot, things appear to be going from bad to worse, because heavy smoke, fire, and explosions are erupting on all sides, and the danger's getting closer. Don changes his tune and suggests they get out of Dodge. But wouldn't you know it, right on cue, the chariot won't start. What are the odds? That's when Will shouts, Look out! As a fiery ball of hot molten lava comes streaking right at the front windshield of our castaway's vehicle. Before we can see what happens next, Kurt, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire, all I can say is I hope the Robinsons have a good auto insurance policy and their premiums are up to date because I have a feeling that fireball's going to leave a scratch.
5: Yeah, which, which uh, insurance company is it that has uh, Mayhem? Allstate? I think it's Allstate, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, he definitely does uh, double overtime in this teaser because it looks like they They're screwed in so many ways. The thing won't start. They're surrounded by lava. It's one of those things that they can't possibly get out of. Nah, they can't possibly get out of it, but we'll still tune in. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 27th episode of Lost in Space titled The Lost Civilization. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.